And, it, and it's not that weird because Christ's body is as important as Beatrice's body to Dante, you know what I mean? The apostles can't witness that he is um, risen again unless they touch him. They yeah, yeah, touch yeah. his scars. You know, it's, yeah. it's the physicality of Christ that that yeah. achieves all these things and and is a witness to people. Not his words as much as his body. You know, Dante could look at that and be like, I wonder what bodies I know that could be the way, the truth, and the light, right? Hi, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about Dante's purgatory. To begin with a quote of the day, I'd like to quote Jorge Luis Borges, who wrote that Dante's comedy is a book we must all read. Not to do it means to deprive ourselves of the greatest gift literature has to offer. It means to condemn ourselves to a weird asceticism. And for hopefully some evidence and examples of what Borges means, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So you like this more than the Inferno, right? This is a better section of the poem, right, for you? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll leave you to it then. It is, I mean, obviously, so much brighter. Mm. I mean... Yeah, they come up... We didn't actually emphasize on our recording about the Inferno. They they climb down Satan and then up Satan and up the other side of the world. They come out of this cavern and the last bit of the Inferno is... We climbed at first and I behind until through a small round opening ahead of us, I saw the lovely things the heavens hold and we came out to see once more the stars. So the, the Inferno ends with, yeah, literally light at the end of this dark tunnel. And not just any light, it's the stars. Um, natural beauty, specifically the beauty of the earth, is such an important part of the purgatory. Is that why you like it more? I do. I'll remind you that in the Inferno there were always similes that pointed back to the beauty of the earth. That's right. The fireflies and, uh, you That's know. right. And those were my favorite, but those were shadows of the real beauty, and now we're getting the actual thing. You know what I mean? For example? Well, the stars. Hmm. We came out to see once more the stars, and then, you know, all that empty space at the bottom of the page, which is just such a relief. Reading the Inferno, there were many beautiful parts, but... You know, it turns out you're happy to leave hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most read section, but it's probably... I mean, my favorite is the Purgatory. It's also your favorite. I've asked around. It, it's like the secret favorite triad. Yeah. It's the secret favorite of this triad, I think. Yeah, surely the Infernos may be more memorable to... Or more notorious, you know? Yeah. Because it has so many bizarre details. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. That would be talked about more, probably. But it is not even close to as moving and as beautiful as the purgatory. If you love writing about or art about art, then this is like, this is paradise. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's mostly about art. It's about art or theology. And, and hope. I love art that explores dark, the dark aspects of existence. I really do. But it turns out that I also like hope. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. The point we're making is that these are all part of one poem. So to, to, to talk of the Inferno as its own unit is slightly, it would right. be like, it would be like looking at a third of the Mona Lisa. It's not the whole thing. 
Dorothy Sayers, a famous translator of the Inferno, said, uh, only reading the Inferno would be like getting to know Paris only through its sewers, which is a little <laughs> bit unfair. I think the Inferno is better than the sewers of Paris. Uh, yeah, the sewers in Paris aren't but it, it's not in whole, poetry. Yeah, that's right. It's still a beautiful poem. <laughs> but it's not the whole... You can't say then that you know Paris. Yes, exactly. Right. Also, the purgatory, to just read that, um, would be like trying to only see the beautiful parts of a city. Yeah, it is a little bit... Too, it would be a little bit too... I mean, there is suffering in the purgatory, which we'll look at, but a little bit too... Um, a little bit too cheerful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, that's why cities are so beautiful, right? And why they smell so good, because it's a weird amalgamation of all these opposing things, right? I was reminded this time when, when I transitioned uh, from the Inferno to the Purgatory of Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. It's a very strange kind of visionary poem, partly in prose, in which he... It's also quite Tao Te Ching, Blake argues through parables and allegories and proverbs and aphorisms this unity of good and evil, this inseparable unity of good and evil, ugliness and beauty. So he has these proverbs of hell. Hmm. Like, for example, in seed time learn, in harvest teach, in winter enjoy. That's the first one. So just emphasizing that we need four seasons in a year, you know? Or uh, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. So there's even a place in life for excess, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the cu- uh, this is one of my favorites. The cut worm forgives the plow. Wow. You know, so one person is working and using their labor to increase their own well-being and fulfill their own lives, but it, it's at the cost of other beings, the worm. Blake's argument here is that in this yin and yang of all the total being, like the worm kind of says, I get it. You have to do you and I have to do me, right? So... Mm. This is roundabout answer to the question that we asked before about why we have to go down to the inferno before we can just go right to purgatory. We asked that last time. Yes. It's because to do one without the other would be completely... Uninteresting and untrue and wrong. Yeah. And unnatural. Yeah, it's uh, that reminds me of a part in Canto 9. He says, Reader, you see how lofty is my theme. You should not be surprised if now I try to match its grandeur with more subtle art. Mm. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Because what does that say about hell? In hell, you know, was he using more grand language to match its its ugliness? I don't know. I don't know about that. It, I think on a more microscopic level, he understands, since he's an artist, the importance of variation and counterbalance and counterbalance exactly so it might not be a counterbalance between inferno and purgatory it could be from one page one canto to the next or one page to the next you know i thought that was extremely fascinating honestly that's something i'm gonna remember as i try to deal with uh, lofty themes you know what i mean i mean yeah. a poet who is going to be describing angels and and hope you know and beautiful, there's so many beautiful scenes in this, in in purgatory. It would seem to someone maybe who is not a poet themselves that that now he's going to be use be using even more beautiful language, right? Right. Even more uh, metaphors, even more 
whatever, <laughs> become even more poetic. But I love that he takes the time to say, reader, you know, reach out to us and say, I'm going to scale it down a bit. Hmm. Don't you think that's cool? I mean, cool? from time to time. Yeah. Right. In order to, you know, just like a symphony, in order to build tension for a crescendo or something that's coming. And, and there's a lot about humility in the purgatory. And maybe he's just like, yeah. there's some things where my poetic powers aren't as necessary because they are beautiful as they are and i just need to speak them and they might even be a little bit dangerous we'll get to some of these scenes okay yeah. one other thing i wanted to mention about the appeal of the purgatory one maybe one reason it feels so interesting and refreshing is because heaven and hell are mentioned in the bible i mean you pointed out last time that they're not mentioned much they're not really described or depicted we no. don't get the full landscape but they are mentioned yeah you know so they're announced as states of being. Right. Purgatory is nowhere to be found in the Bible. The whole idea of this place and mm. its purpose doesn't mm. exist in the Bible. It is more or less Dante's invention. Mm. So it appeals to us because of its novelty, perhaps, because it's a, it's a place in Christian metaphysics that we don't really talk about. I mean, maybe Catholics talk a lot about it, but it, it gets way less attention than heaven and hell. Is this intermediate place where we can kind of right our wrongs and, yeah, and, and, and beautify ourselves. And isn't that why people who love art and anyone who wants to use their brain <laughs> um, doesn't like black and white thinking, right? There has to be a gray area. Yeah. And the purgatory is a beautiful metaphor for the gray area. Yeah, and the people in it seem more human. Like, I mean, yeah. in the Inferno, we all recognize aspects of ourselves and those characters. We're all, we're all stubborn and blind and self-delusional and yeah. unrepentant. We, so we are infernal to some degree. But, but not th- hopeless. It's very, it, it does yeah. seem very unrealistic, right, for so many people be, to be walking around without hope. Even I feel yeah, like the or, most destitute are have a glimmer of hope. Or even just the desire to improve. I think that's yeah. what characterizes most people. Even the people who willingly hold on to their vices and flaws and sins, they they also want to strive for something better. I mean, we all yeah. do. You know what I mean? So yeah, and it turns it turns those characters in the inferno into real caricatures, right? Often, most of yeah, the time. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, one one aspect of their humanity is overemphasized. Mm-hmm. Very much in the way that a caricature would. But I really loved how the purgatory started. Yeah. It was just like a balm for my soul. Because <laughs> I honestly, I had a hard time with the Inferno because of the things we just talked about. I mean, there were, you know, I, I enjoyed reading it, but it wasn't um, as enjoyable as I thought it might be. But um, so when we open, when Canto... One opens with, For better waters now the little bark of my poetic powers hoists its sails and leaves behind the cruelest of the seas. I really like that. You know, his, his poetic powers are, are finally able to, um, to pick up speed, you know, mm-hmm. and to actually travel towards a destination because now there's hope involved. And I, f- yeah. and I feel like the best works of art, as we've often you know, we've made this point a lot. We suspect that the best art is the one that's life-affirming. And now, finally, we're in a very life-affirming realm. <laughs> and, you know, so his poetic powers are picking up speed again. Right. 
he obviously was writing poetry before too, but his poetry is getting a boost, <laughs> at least for me. That's my experience as a reader. Yeah, there's a surge of momentum and hope. Yeah. Um, the suffering in the Inferno seemed pointless because those people are never going to change. Mm-hmm. Suffering here seems totally different because they are going to change because of their suffering. It is their suffering that will change them. Like mm-hmm. Nietzsche's thing with you can endure, if you have a why, you can endure any. Is that what he said? He says, if we possess a why to life, we can put up with almost any how. Yeah. So the suffering in purgatory is like, I'm suffering because it will purify me, because I will learn self-mastery, because I will learn humility or penitence, because I will learn to be the be in control of my desires as opposed to them being in control of me. So mm-hmm. that's why they're suffering. And because they know the why, they can endure the, you know, how am I going to endure this? They can endure the how. As, as opposed to the inferno where it's like, okay, I get it. Pointless suffering with, with no end. Yeah. Try to point out some of these formal aspects of the poem, too, that aren't often talked about and might be lost in translation. In Canto 1, if you look at, I mean, it depends on what translation you have, but in the Chardi, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between translations. If you look at line, it's Canto 1, Purgatory. So in the Chardi translation, at least, and I think he retains this according to the notes, this is also true of the Italian. Lines 31, 32, and 33 are, so Dante and Virgil end up on this kind of like the base of this mountain. Dante says, I saw nearby an ancient man alone. His bearing filled me with such reverence, no father could ask more from his best son. You know, so that's mm-hmm. line 33. Yeah, no father could ask more for, from his best son. So Dante is putting at line 33, Christ's age when he died, mm-hmm. this allusion to fathers asking their sons to do things. And stuff like that happens. Mm. A lot. And I just wanted to point it out, not because I think the greatness of this poem rests on stuff like this, but it's like... It's meticulous. Yeah, it's, we've said this before in the Inferno, like walking through a cathedral, every corner or niche or vault or ledge is everything. designed, purposeful. Yeah, everything in its right place. That's right. And that's, there's something very satisfying about that, obviously. Yeah. Um, in Canto 2, they meet this poet named Casella, who they embrace before they even know who he is. Or Casella rushes up to embrace them before he even knows who they are. Oh, I love that part. I know, yeah. He rushes up to him and then... Three times there I clasped my hands behind him, and three times I drew them to my breast through empty air. Mm. So, it's weird. You know, they're sometimes embodied things and other times they're intangible and wait he kind of has it both ways from time to time i know and i love that bit about the pilgrim being different because he breaks the light Mm. yeah they're always noticing that he either casts a shadow or he weighs down the boat or parts the light and that's beautiful to me that's mortality and for affirming (laughs) he's the one everybody envies yeah Though these uh, shades in purgatory have all this hope of reaching heaven sooner than any living person, and they are around a lot of beautiful things, and uh, choirs apparently, and angels, and natural beauty surpassing art, they, they envy Dante for being living and breathing, for still walking the earth. I think it's because he has a body. Yeah. This is a question that 
the end of the purgatory will ask kind of explicitly when he sees Beatrice. Dante loves Beatrice's body. Mm-hmm. He makes that clear. So, you know, this is from time immemorial a problem. Uh, lust for human bodies, you know. Every major religious tradition has had to grapple with this problem. It seems good and, and life, literally life-giving and vitalizing, but also corrupting or um, enslaving. Yeah. Dante, I think, in this battle, I mean, when, when, we, when we read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, religious traditions have developed different ways of grappling this. You know, certain ones emphasize that we should overcome the desires of the flesh. Even in purgatory, people haven't. They're still wanting bodies. Yeah, I think, I think that's because Dante is pro-body. Yeah. He's pro, not even pro-body, but pro-sensuality. Yes. You'll see that when he gets to Beatrice. But yeah, this is the little clues here that... And in all the details about the scenery, he is pro-body, pro-sensory experience, yeah. should read... Uh... I, I just find myself always wondering, wait, what people are we supposed to envy or where should we want to be in this scenario? You know, it's never quite clear. I mean, in hell, I mean. in hell, it is much clearer, obviously. But there's a bit of Canto two that I translated that I will now read. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I hate this. I hate doing it. I hate reading my own stuff because it's like, who do I think I am? But um, I just really love this bit, not because it's like the climax of the poem. It's not even my favorite bit of the Divine Comedy. I just wanted to raise out of the poem a chunk of poetry that I found beautiful, mm-hmm. profound, and that is similar to the kind of stuff you can find on every page of this book. So what kind of translation is this? It's not, it doesn't rhyme. Is it literal? Um, well, I looked at the Italian and I looked at several other English translations and just kind of fixed w- what I thought were mistakes. <laughs> so uh, you did some not interpreting. Mistakes. Not mistakes, uglinesses, infelicities. So, you did you add any ideas or new images? No. Okay. So, this is Canto 2, lines 52 to 75. There was a crowd there waiting. Everybody stared the way you do your first day in a strange place, and the sun was up now, and the last stray stars of Capricorn had fled. One of the new arrivals looked at us and said, please tell us if you know which of these paths lead to the mountain. So, all these new souls have landed on the shore of the mountain. They don't know where they're going, so they ask Dante and Virgil, where, where should we go? So, please tell us if you know which of these paths leads to the mountain. And my guide responded, you think we belong here, that we know this place. We don't. We're strangers too. We also just arrived, just barely before you, but by another way, a way so steep and rough that this new climb will feel like rest. But they'd already paled. They had noticed I was breathing, that I had a body, that I lived. Like when a messenger holding an olive branch brings news some far-flung town has longed for and gets sighted from the gate and thronged. That's how they crowded me. As if forgetting they were dead already and that now the only thing they had to do was go and become beautiful. Angel choir singing. I just really like that all they had to do was go and become beautiful. That's more or less exactly what it says in the Italian. Because I've read this poem before and I... I thought you had invented that last bit because it was too good. <laughs> Stupid Italian. It's amazing. I have to get up and get it. Canto 2. What do I say? 57 to 70 what? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going <laughs> to pronounce yeah. this, but... Um, Let me see. 
Oh, yeah. See, they were obligated to go and become beautiful. Pele. That means, this means make, and that means beautiful. So they had to go make themselves beautiful. What? I seriously thought you invented that. It's no. so contemporary. And no translators, were, they were always like, I mean, what does Charity say? Um, Charity says, Oh, yeah. Charity says, as a crowd eager for news, will all but smother a messenger who bears the olive branch and not care how they trample one another. So these, each one of them a sole elect, push close to stare at me, well nigh forgetting the way to go and make their beauty perfect. Oh, yeah, that is not... That's just a slightly... That implies they're already beautiful. What's so great about the Dante is the simplicity. Exactly. Like, go become beautiful. I know. What does uh, Mark Musa say? So all the happy souls of these redeemed stared at my face, forgetting, as it were, the way to go to make their beauty whole. See, things are just being added mm. that get in the way of the simplicity of the Italian. You did a better job. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, but also not kidding. That's one of my favorite things ever. Yeah, so good, right? But it sounds so simple and impossible. All you have to do is go and become beautiful. I love it. I absolutely love it. That's the purpose of existence. And it's worth suffering for. And in fact, suffering will be required. But beautiful, I think, you know, ballet could be good as well. Like, maybe that's why they're using words like perfection or something. Because it's not just aesthetically beautiful. But right. I'm, tra I'm trying to trail in this word a connotation of morally beautiful or... Yes. Every, you know, everything that's good. Everything that's good. Go, go make your person... Go become a beautiful soul. You know? Yeah, like that quote in uh, Invisible Cities, right? He yeah. says, find what's not inferno. Yeah, and give it space. Yeah. We've lingered, which is appropriate. We've lingered a long time because they meet Casella, mm -hmm. and Casella ironically sings to Dante a song, and the song <laughs> that is sung by Casella to Dante is one of Dante's own poems. First, Casella sings a psalm, and then he sings a poem by Dante. Mm -hmm. Which is very hubristic, you know, like <laughs> equating Dante, equating his own work with the Bible. But they're all pausing here at the base of this mountain to sing each other songs or to recite each other poems. The Psalms are poems and Dante, this is a poem by Dante that was later put to music. So mm -hmm. they're reading each other poems here at the base of this mountain and they're not moving up. They, they mm -hmm. have forgotten for a minute that all they have to do is go and become beautiful. They're lingering. And because they're lingering, Cato, who is the kind of the guardian of purgatory, says, What's this? What's this? Negligence? Loitering? Hmm. Oh, laggard crew, run to the mountain and strip off the scarf that lets not God be manifest in you. Hmm. So, and then this wonderful simile, exactly as a flock of pigeons gleaning a field of stubble, pecking busily, forgetting all their primping and their preening, will rise as one and scatter through the air, leaving their feast without another thought when they are taken by a sudden scare. So that new band... All thought of pleasure gone broke from the feast of music with a start and scattered for the mountainside like one who leaps and does not look where he will, where he will land. Yeah, this is interesting. The fact that there's human imperfect songs being sung, you know, in a place where people's job is to be go and become beautiful and that they're finding such comfort in it. You'd think that there were, you know, greater superior hymns as there is superior art in purgatory, mm. right? Yeah. But all these souls are so comforted. And, you know, it says, My master and myself and all those souls that came with him were deeply lost in joy, as if that sound were all that exists. 
and yeah, they were enraptured by the sound of those sweet notes. I love that it distracts them of the loftiest goal of existence. Isn't that interesting? It distracts them. Well, for, before we move on to that, you said an interesting thing first, which was that in the realm of the, I wouldn't say this isn't heaven yet, but the angels and the soon-to-be angelic are singing songs that we already have here on earth. Yes. There's no, there's no canon of literature that will be revealed to the pure, the good, the angelic after we die. They're singing earthly songs. Mm. So there, there are some pieces of writing that are so beautiful that they are divine. Right. And it's because they're imperfect. I mean, all my favorite music is I love because it's not perfect. But it is interesting that they are distracted from their goal. Yes. So is art, is poetry specifically, or songs, um, harmful, dangerous? I know. That's, that's the question I wanted to ask you, too. Is it merely a distraction from something greater? Or is it the greatest thing? Well, the answer must be yes. The answer must be both. Dante is a poet, and he asserts poetry left and right throughout the Divine Comedy. But I think he's included this moment here at the Purgatory to tell us that, just like love... You know, the Divine Comedy is a poem about love. And we saw in the Inferno that love can lead us astray. Mm. But it is also the only source of our salvation. Love is. Yeah. So anything good has its evil side, has its opposite, right? Mm. So there is, you know, Hamlet, nothing good or bad but thinking makes it so. It's often interpreted as a call for moral relativism. But it's, I think it's simply better understood as a true acknowledgement that how we use things determines their their worth. Mm -hmm. You can love and end up in jail because of it. Yeah. Um, poetry can save. I think poetry can literally save lives. You know, but it can also become cause of someone's ruin. I know. You only have to read through YouTube comments under any song. Oh my gosh! It's like my favorite genre. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube grieving comments. Yeah. Um. You know, just today I listened to a song. Won't say by who, because <laughs> it seems like anything would just look ridiculous next to Dante. But uh, and somebody wrote, "I'm a war veteran and with severe PTSD, but this song continues to save my life on a regular basis." Yeah. And this was not a masterpiece song; it's a very imperfect song. <laughs> I'm tempted now to. Can I read a couple of these YouTube comments? Yeah, do it. <laughs> So, um, music for airports, you've, you've reminded me now <laughs> some of my favorite moments of world literature that happen to be YouTube comments. <laughs> yes. Um, Brian Eno's album, Music for Airports, is one of my favorites. And just scrolling through the comments, somebody wrote, Me and my mom were camped out on mattresses next to my brother Robin's bed in his hospital room for what turned out to be the last two days of his life. A friend had lent us a boombox and a few CDs, and we gravitated to Music for Airports. And basically had it on repeat play right through the journey of Robin's passing. Last Saturday, I was pottering about in the back room repair section of the guitar shop when, where I work. Was aware of workmate Neil chatting to a shortish, bald, older gentleman out front of shop. As the gent went to leave, Neil called out after him, Cheers, Brian. Yep, the penny dropped. I caught up with him. This is Brian Eno. I caught up with him in the street, introduced myself, and recounted the above tale. He graciously appreciated the story. That's very moving. Thank you, he said. I like that you shared that particular comment because both the reader, the listener, and the musician are moved together by this, right? Not just the listener 
just like Dante, they are literally singing his song, his poetry, and he is moved by that mm. as much as the listeners. Do you know what I mean? Totally, yeah. Moved through the communal experience and that that's even possible in this weird existence. Yeah. Uh, there's another one <laughs> I'll never forget, Credence Clearwater Revival. Have you ever seen The Rain? Somebody once wrote just something like, I remember I was in Vietnam when I heard this and the soldier in Vietnam and it was just this moment in this lull of the battle and it was raining and somebody started dancing because a song was playing or something. These moments, can they can pause life, you know, like Frost has a momentary stay against confusion. They can be soulless or Rilke. So what Rilke says, they can be soulless and rapture and help. Hmm. But how does a poem become an obstacle on the way to salvation. Yeah, this is where it gets really tricky. I mean, I, I think anything can become a false idol. Yeah. You know, I think anything can become, you can, you know, I, it is conceivable to love Shakespeare more than, is it? <laughs> I would say it is conceivable to love Shakespeare more than you should, but is it? Probably not. <laughs> well, what would that look like? What if you created a sect based around Shakespeare, what would that look like? <laughs> well, it, it, maybe it's, it's doing something slightly anachronistic here. Like Dante is warning his readers, I think, of a specific type of poetry. He comes out of the Middle Ages and troubadour poetry, love poetry, chivalric poetry, in which a knight's kind of sensuous celebration of his lady, that, that was a popular mode of poetry. Hmm. So perhaps there's a fine line there between... I mean, erotic self-indulgence and aesthetic sublimity. You know what I mean? So Dante yeah. is saying, like, be careful about the kinds of poems that you linger over. I mean, it could be like rock. What kind rockin of poem is this that they're singing from? Do you know this poem? Well, one is a psalm. Well, yeah, I do. One of Dante's poems from Vita Nova, which is love poems for Beatrice. So, oh, I you know see. what I mean? Celebrating his love of this woman. So, And he's literally headed towards her, but he's distracted by a song about her? It's very interesting. What the heck? <laughs> That's what I, I said in our first recording about the Inferno, that one of my favorite things about Dante is the way he takes his own peculiar obsessions, which could be vices. They could even be grave sins. They could derail a life, his obsession for this woman. And he makes them the road to salvation. Hmm. You know what like I mean? someone trying to figure out whether, uh, whether love, romantic love is good or bad. <laughs> Yes, a Christian has this problem. Like, I love... But she's leading me to heaven. <laughs> so he makes lust heavenly. This is what I mean when I say that he makes his own particular vices kind of the road to salvation. He finds a way to square the circle and to make lust divine. As it, as, well as, as played. I, <laughs> but I think as it should be. This isn't some pervy... I think what he's attempted... If anyone has attempted, if, if anyone has succeeded in doing this, it's him. Because there's this contradiction, there's this paradox, like the body is corrupt, the body is fallen, I am a worm and I am no man, this is what the psalm says, and yet the body was created by God. And we are commanded to procreate, but we're, we can't, you know, commit adultery, as Jesus says, in our hearts, you know, so we can't even think sensual thoughts. Mm. So we're poor. A, a, a Christian is torn between these two contradictory injunctions. And, know, da and Dante and some says... Some people suggest balance, but what is that? Well, Dante says there's no contradiction here. You can lust after... You know, lust can be sacred. He he will see at the end of Purgatory 
a symbol of Christ in the eyes of Be- reflected in the eyes of Beatrice. So in the eyes of his lover. Right now, my brain looks like um, an atom bomb exploding in water. <laughs> in water? <laughs> no, not in water. It looks like an atom bomb mushrooming in the sky. <laughs> well, keep in mind that we, we saw intemperate lovers before, like people who couldn't control this. And I think, okay, so we, we have to move on for the sake of time. We're, we're getting way too distracted here. Negligence, loitering, negligence, loitering. But It's literally happening to us right now. <laughs> What's happening? We're distracted. We're enacting, Dante. From the climb. But don't you see what I mean? Like Dante says, okay, be careful with poetry and be careful with sensual love. Be careful with beauty. Maybe beauty is the best word here. Be careful with beauty. But we want to become beautiful. Beauty is salvation. You have to go and become beautiful because that is your salvation. But there are tangents on this road that look similar, that smell similar, that involve many of the same ingredients, but that are... Not superior. Corrupting. You know, there are... Like rock and roll, you know, there are... Maybe the equivalent of the troubadour love poem that he's adv- he's advising we be careful of is like raves where you take drugs. It's like, well, I get it. Beauty, you know, music is beautiful. You want out-of-body experiences. This is what is provided, the semi-mystical, semi-religious things. But And like promiscuity could easily look like just the greatest expression of your love for right, the like body. Free right, like free love. Like, oh, I love everyone. It's just love, 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 unlimited love. But yeah. You got to be careful, you know. You got to be careful. I know. I'm thinking of Diane Arbus again, just because I just read a biography about her. But she was extremely <laughs> promiscuous. She talked about that often. She would just sleep with everybody because she was always looking for ways to more fully experience the world. Yeah. But it did not lead to any sort of like catharsis or any seemingly to what she was hoping for. So there's a version of beauty and love that saves, and there are false idols of it that damn. But the tr- the mistake is to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. I love how Virgil is more confused in... Maybe that's another... Virgil is endlessly charming to me in the Inferno, but here in the Purgatorio, he's even more charming because he's as bewildered and in awe of what he sees as Dante and as us, because he's new here. He's never been here. Yeah, in Canto 10, it says, We stopped there on the level space that stretched lonelier than a desert path. I tired and both of us uncertain of the way. Yeah, that's right. And there's a moment in Canto 3 where they don't know where to go. And Dante's like, well, what if we just ask them? And Virgil's like, oh, great idea. (laughs) That's a good idea. Let's ask them. So kind of Dante is practicing going out on his own and solving problems for himself. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing. This is happening in a hopeful realm. You know, in hell where there was no hope, he clung with all his might to to Virgil. He needed him. He couldn't have made it through without him. Yeah. But now that he's in a more hopeful space, um, he's becoming more um, empowered, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. When we get to uh, Virgil's discourses of free will and love, He's getting things wrong. Virgil's getting things wrong. But anyway, you were about to say something. Well, yeah, I feel like it's making an interesting, possibly an interesting argument about about art. Sometimes it takes us, it carries us <laughs> you know, to one set of footprints in the sand. <laughs> what are you talking about? 
you know the sand poem. I do. <laughs> sometimes it totally carries us. Art does? Yes. And sometimes it just walks next to us. Both are, I think, equally important. You know what I mean? Mm. It doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting. It doesn't have to fully save us all the time. Sometimes it's enough if art just uh, is company. Right. Commiserates or is simply there as a another witness of our yeah. experiences. Yeah. I mean, what are you? Did you have anything else to say about Virgil not being a guide anymore? I mean, what's the point even? Why is he still hanging around? Virgil? Yeah. If he doesn't know where he is and what to do. Um, yeah, that's a good question, actually. I've never asked myself that before. Why couldn't Dante just make his own way up the mountain? Yeah. I don't know. I'll have to think more about that. Does he, does he like Dante? <laughs> you know what I mean? Are they friends now? There is some of that. There's this wonderful brotherhood between them. But I think Virgil, when we get to the top of the mountain of Purgatory, my favorite moment, it's the saddest moment in all of Dante, is when Virgil leaves. I'm not spoiling anything. We know that at one point Beatrice takes over as Dante's guide. Mm. Dante wants to allegorically enact the limits of Virgil, the limitations of classical pagan non-Christian life. So Virgil gets to go as far as that will take him, which is pretty far, mm. but no farther. That's one possible answer, but it's really a good question. I'll have to think more about it. You like this gates of purgatory moment when the gates open, right? Yes. Where is that? Can you find it for us? Yeah, that's in Canto 9 um, at the end. So the angel of the Lord um, opens the gates. So they're in anti-purgatory right now, right? Yeah. About to pass into purgatory. And uh, so at the end it says, Then pushing back the portal's holy door, enter, he said to us. But first be warned, to look back means to go back out again. And then the pivots of that sacred gate, fashioned of heavy metal, resonant, turned slow inside their sockets. The rolling roar was louder and more stubborn than Tarpeia's when it was robbed of vigilant Metellus. Its treasury made lean from that time on. And as the grating pivots rolled, I turned, for I heard chanting, Te Deum Laudamus, accompanied by the sweet notes of that door. This harmony of sounds made me recall just how it seems in church when we attend to people singing as the organ plays. Sometimes the words are heard, and sometimes lost. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Enough said? <sighs> Yeah, probably. I mean, it's obvious why it's beautiful. So let's say a few things anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the moments in a church choir where you can sometimes make out the words and you sometimes can't. It's like this foggy, semi-hallucinogenic. Yeah, the, point, the point of church isn't always to relay information. Yeah, you know, to be it, taught, to take in information. That's yes. not the point of church, really. I mean, it is, but only half. The other half is... To lose your mind, you know, to, to be hypnotized, to, to be stunned in awe, to kind of, this is why people take drugs at raves, you know, you want to, a kind of out-of-body experience. You want to be around people, like, for example, speakers or, or singers, whose whole body, you know, their body language just says, I'm giving myself to this experience and to... Well, you want light. that for yourself. You want to be around people like that, but you want... And you want that for yourself. That for, so you want to kind of like, yeah, lose yourself in the moment. That's what you want. I know. I'm just... 
I find it extremely fascinating for a writer, for someone who leans with all his heart on words to say sometimes the words are heard, sometimes lost, and that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter, no. It's powerful without the words. Why is a poet saying that? Well, because poetry is partly music. It's a very strange art form. It's music that has semantic meaning attached to it. Mm. And so often the semantic meaning gets the attention. Uh, look at this word. Look at the connotation of this word. Look at this sentence, you know. Mm. Whereas what's, I think, maybe ignored, except by kids who always love and understand poetry, is, yeah. the, is the rhythm, yeah. is the music. So, so a poet is saying, like, don't forget the music of this poem. That mm. this poem is trance-inducing rhythm. Yeah, don't forget the music and the mystery, the things that are not fully understood. Don't forget that that's like the pleasure. I think it's so cool that in a book that's about so many great lofty themes, there's he, this wonderful poet, is is thinking of the materials. What is the gate made of? Yeah, I know. That's the metal. Great. What the sockets of the gates? Who's thinking of the gate sockets when there's you know and passing the creaking through the sound that. The sweet notes of the door. He wants to go into every part of this experience. What is that Zbigny of Herbert line? Better the cre a creaking. Are we going to be able to rem remember it? <laughs> I know. I wrote it down in my notes to try to remember, but I, I totally can't. I'm Googling it. I just absolutely love when art goes strangely concrete on us in, you know, with details that are seemingly very unimportant. But then they just become, like, glorious. Yeah. There's this amazing painting in a in the Arena Chapel, I think it's called, by Giotto, who was actually a friends with Dante. And they must have a similar aesthetic, because there's a, a detail of the painting where an angel is literally rolling back, like a scroll, the night, yeah. the heaven, the heavens to reveal the gates of paradise. Yeah. It's, I mean, coming from a religious background, uh, you know, where, like we've said, the afterlife is never described in any sort of detail. It's so endlessly satisfying to me to even just have, like, the gate described in such detail. And such familiar detail. I think that's why exactly we love it so much. It's earthly. Yes. I found that's a big new Herbert. Yes. Oh, I don't know the name of the poem, but the line is, it's better to be the creaking of a floor than shrilly transparent perfection. Wow, that's perfect. It's so Dante-esque, right? It's yes. better to be a creaking floor than shrilly transparent perfection. Wow. So a heaven without texture, without groaning and creaking and crenellation and bumps and rough edges. I know, like what should... Shouldn't this, this there be no an good. angel who oils the gates? <laughs> you know? Yes, better unoiled. It is. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> ten minutes on creaking gate. Um, he gets these seven peas carved into his forehead. How weird. It's like some kind of acid dream, this poem, isn't it? Dante mm. gets seven peas mm. carved, carved into his forehead. Mm. Peccatum, the Latin word for sin. And at, at the end of each terrace on his way up, He's like whacked in the face by an angel wing <laughs> and the one P disappears at a time, mm. kind of embodying this idea that as you go up the mountain, you are slowly purged of sin. Um, and again, I like that. I like that physical 
physicality of the peas painted on the forehead. Yeah. You'd think that there was enough power and magic up there <laughs> yeah. to uh, make these things happen in some other way, some more abstract way. Yeah. But they're painted on. Paint is powerful. In Canto 10, here's a moment that will help us with our earlier discussion about uh, love. This is the can- the circle of the proud. So on all the terraces of purgatory, the repentant sinners are, they learn how to become beautiful. They learn how to purge themselves of their sins by looking at visual art, friezes carved in the stone or yeah. bas reliefs, or, and also singing psalms. Mm-hmm. or scriptures from Exodus, or scenes from the life of Mary. So, in one of these, in Canto 10, they're looking at this, um, this bas-relief carved into stone. And there, in the stone, before the holy vessel, this is the Ark of the Lord, dancing with girt-up robes, the humble psalmist moved, so King David, less than a king and more in his wild prancing, facing him portrayed with a vexed frown of mingled sadness and contempt, Michal, M-I-C-H-A-L, stood at a palace window looking down. So this is his wife, David later marries Michal. This wonderful moment in the book of Samuel where David David dances naked before the Lord. He takes his clothes off. And in the celebratory dance beside the Ark of the Covenant, dances nakedly. And all these women see him and are kind of like, they freak out. And Michael, his wife, disapproves. She's looking down and disapproves. I like this moment a lot because it says less than a king and more. This isn't, quote unquote, how a king should behave. But it's a kind of holy righteous dance. Mm-hmm. And Michael is looking from above, kind of condescendingly sneering at this, what she thinks is a crude, vile act, gesture. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's not. It's humble and penitent and celebratory. You know what I mean? So, Less than a king because he's naked, more than a king because he's naked. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly. You see what I mean by how this reverts to our love conversation? Like, there are ways of behaving in the world that are that are good sometimes and bad sometimes. It depends on our motivations, our intentions, the context, our attitude, mm. the purpose. I think the lesson that we're being taught here is that you can easily fall into the trap of McCall and look at these and sneer at them and be like, well, you're acting inappropriately. Mm-hmm. This is bad. I'm better than you. I'm above you. But yeah. she's wrong. You know what I mean? So, we're, giving a, we're given a kind of negative example of how to maybe not judge or that things are in to some degree relative. Yeah, and people are often concerned, like, why are you here, you know, from the land of the living? Have heaven's laws been bent or whatever? But, you know, there's there's always um, they're all, they're rules bendy. being bend, they're bent. Inherent, yeah, they're inherently bendy, heaven's laws. Yeah. Yeah, the, the flexibility of the rules is part of the rigidity, <laughs> almost. Say that again? The, the flexibility of the rules is, is part of the, um, the strictness of them. It's a rule that they bend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how could it be otherwise? You know, think about raising our kids. Like, it, is there just a list we could print off of rules of how to live? Like, in every situation, do X. I know, in every but what situation if? <laughs> like this, do Y. Of course not. It's like you have to learn. It goes back to the Tao Te Ching about being like water. You know, Bruce Lee's thing. It's like... It depends. Mm. You know, it depends. That, how do you live? It depends. That's my answer to that question. I know, but then, you know, you're kind of, your brain could easily unravel because you're like, well, if it depends, then why are there even rules? So why try to have rules? Is the rule just that it has to be beautiful? 
thinking of, for example, a work of art, break the rule but make it beautiful, and that's keeping the rules. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you have to apprentice yourself and learn how to become fluid. But, um, I mean, there are rules of thumb. Don't commit murder. Yeah. You know, don't commit suicide. Don't be proud. Don't be gluttonous. And yet we find people in purgatory who are guilty of all... Dante, like, don't be proud. You know, that's a rule of thumb. Don't be proud. Mm -hmm. But it's not instant damnation if you are proud. Let's look at what happens to Dante. He sees these people struggling under the weight of these huge boulders on their backs. The boulders are designed to lower them to the ground, to humble them. Humble etymologically is related to earth or ground. Mm -hmm. So when we're humble, when we're humiliated, we bow low. So these people are being bowed low by these rocks. And um, Dante says... In Canto 13, I'm skipping a couple things I want to circle back and cover. In Canto 13, Dante says, A soul asks Dante, But who are you that come here to seek such news of us, and have your eyes unsown as I believe? So this is up, up a terrace or two. The envious have their eyes sewn shut so they can't look and covet. Mm. You know, And one of them is like, I don't know. It sounds like you don't have your eyes sewn shut. I don't know how he can tell this of his. He's like, who are you here? I'm going to have your eyes unsewn. And Dante says, my eyes will yet be taken from me upon this ledge, but not for very long. So he's like, yeah, I'm guilty of a little bit of envy, but not much. First of all, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> like, I don't have that much to be envious about. I'm Dante. Yeah. It's so great, right? Little they sinned through being turned in envy. He continues, my soul is gripped by a far greater fear of the torment here below. For even now, I seem to feel the burden those souls bear. Those souls below on the, corner, on the terrace, they just left the souls of the proud. Mm -hmm. So he's terrified of, of having to spend centuries on this terrace of the proud, bowed down by this boulder. He knows he's vain. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting stuff about fame, earthly fame. Yeah. That he needs to hear at that moment. And that leads me to think that maybe he was given this opportunity to travel through these realms because he was at the edge of completely succumbing to yeah. pride. I think that, yeah, I think that's wise to say. Um, it's kind of like love. It's like, should he be ashamed of the fact that he's the best poet in the world? He knows he's a great poet. And so what is he going to do? And he needs to know that to make good art, too. And he needs to know that in order to attempt such a project but with it comes yeah some side effects like oh, i'm better than everyone else i know there's some really nice lines about fame like oh empty glory of all human power how soon the green fades from the topmost bough unless the following season shows no growth and yeah that's uh, beautiful your earthly fame is but a gust of wind that blows about shifting this way and that and as it changes quarter changes name and also your earthly fame is like the green in grass. It comes and goes, and he who makes it grow, green from the earth will make it fade again. And then Dante says, Your words of truth have humbled my heart. They have reduced my swollen pride. Hmm. He needs a, Maybe this is another answer to your question about why is Virgil still with him. Because he's still... He, he's not perfected. He, he has not been made beautiful. Mm -hmm. he, he still needs help. Dante still needs help. Yeah. So he needs a helper. He he's still learning all these lessons. Maybe he doesn't need Virgil to guide him through purgatory, but through life. Right. Yeah, I like what you say about fame. You have to do great, noble things. 
And it's easy to layer on top of that this added ingredient of, since I wrote this amazing thing that will benefit mankind, Mm -hmm. I must be something special. Mm -hmm. But you can do the great thing that benefits mankind without having that other slightly corrupt thought. Right. Yeah. People obsessed with fame, they're thinking about themselves all day long. All day long. (laughs) I just love how Dante admits he, he commits the sin of pride in his confession that he's guilty of pride. He's like, ah, I'm not very guilty of envy. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, who do I have to be envious of? <laughs> it's a very proud thing to say. I love that. Um, back in Canto 11, they hear the, they hear, um, souls of the proud reciting the Lord's Prayer. But speaking of arrogance and pride, Dante has rewritten the Lord's Prayer. So instead of give us this day our daily bread, Dante rewrites this line, give us this day thy manna. I think that's really important because later on we will see a poet named Statius misquoting Virgil with extremely good effect. Statius misquotes Virgil and very good things come of this misquotation. He gets Virgil slightly wrong, but it saves him. Dante is rewriting or slash misquoting the Lord's Prayer. Why do I think this is important? Because um, we can too easily get tied down to the literal words. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, oh, God created the earth in seven days. That must literally mean it happened in seven 24-hour periods. I think this is a little lesson here. It's like, no, you can just as easily take out the word bread from the scriptures, put in the word manna. It's a symbol. Mm. It's a symbol. So let's not be so tied down to literal readings of this. literal readings of the Bible or literal readings of Dante. He's teaching us how to read. And how we read is we bring our own experience, our own interpretation. And and if that means we're slightly, quote unquote, misquoting, who cares? That's even kind of necessary. Sometimes you don't hear the words of the hymn. That's exactly exactly right. And even if you mishear them, the mishearing can be maybe the instruction that you needed. Maybe your unconscious, your subconscious telling you something. Yeah. Speaking of um, fame and humility and and pride, I thought it was really interesting. I'm always I'm re- I'm very interested in the art that's in Purgatory, and Dante is extremely impressed with these stone carvings. And he says, "I saw Troy gaping from its ashes there. O Ilium, how you were fallen low, depicted on the sculptured road of stone. What master artist, with his brush or pen, could reproduce these shapes and shadings here?" Such art must overwhelm the subtlest mind. The dead seem dead, the living seemed alive. No witness to the scene itself saw better than I who trod upon it, head bent low. That's so good. I'm so glad you read that. I mean, he's having a real, like, humbling moment here. You know, he sees art that's superior to his, you know? I mean, he wouldn't be able to not compare himself to this art. And what makes these stone carvings so amazing is that... They are truer to life, truer than his art is to life. Yeah. And, he, you know, he, he couldn't have been a better witness of the scene, of many other scenes in the stone carvings, like the fall of Troy, if he had actually been there. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a gorgeous way, you know, to celebrate art and the way it can help us have experiences that are superior to firsthand experiences. Absolutely. It's amazing. That's the best way of describing it. They can have, help us have experiences that are superior to even first-hand experiences. It's what Proust says in Swan's Way. He says we, we read and thereby in, in the course of an afternoon 
can gain 70 years worth of experience. Yeah. We can learn things that it would otherwise take us 70 years to learn. I know. This is, I mean, God could have, like, put, you know, helped Dante time travel. <laughs> but instead, they're stone carvings. Yeah. This is endlessly interesting to me. This is This will be my way of summarizing what we've said so far. We like the purgatory more because it's like a museum. It's like the best museum in the world. Yeah. And you walk through this mountain that is a museum, and literally there are hanging... You see stone friezes, you see sculptures, but it's also a museum that has poems in it, it has songs in it. Mm. So it's this house of art, it's this mansion of art. The purgatory is a mansion of art. And you walk through this mansion of art, this museum, and you, you just look at the art. Like, look at this Van Gogh, look at this Rembrandt, look at this poem, you know, by Wordsworth. Mm-hmm. And we're being taught, we're being shown that what this art does to us is that it saves our souls... Mm-hmm. We have private personal experiences with it that aren't aren't interpreted or editorialized by the outside. And, and whether we can fully hear the words or not. If we don't, we don't need the museum guide beside us explaining to us every single inch of structural meaning in this canvas because half of the value of it is just being overwhelmed. Mm. Like we don't know the words necessarily. Yeah. And even if we walk away with the quote-unquote wrong interpretation of this piece, um, it doesn't matter if it has moved us. Mm, That's the miracle, being moved. The Purgatory is a book about what art is for Mm -hmm. and how to interact with it. Yeah. Canto 12 is the Terrace of the Proud. There's this cool thing in the Italian, I'm getting this from the notes, where for several successive stanzas, the lines start with V, but it's the same letter is U, interchangeable. And then for several more stanzas, the first letter is O. And then for several more, the first letter is M. And then for one stanza after that, it's V or U, O, M again. U, O, M is the word for man or human. This is very uh, deliberate acrostic installed in this canto. You know, one of these structural details that the fingerprint of a grand designer everywhere. And it's in the Terrace of the Proud because Pride, I suppose, is being asserted as the universal human vice, you know? Mm. So I thought that was a cool little detail. Is there, what's the point of inserting these little tricks? I shouldn't call them tricks, but little secrets. Yeah, they're not something that the poem rests on for me. You know, this is not what is giving me most of my awe Mm -hmm. or joy when I read this poem. But it's like, you know, if you're in a cathedral, you know, we talked about the organ song, and you half hear the words and you half don't. Mm. It's just proof that if you pay attention to the tiles on the floor or the way this arch is moving across the ceiling, you know what I mean? You will find meaning. Yeah. So there's a sense that there's always a secret ready for you to find out about if you look. Yeah, I don't. I would hesitate slightly with this word secret because I don't want a lay reader. I consider myself a lay reader. So I don't want other lay readers to be like, oh, there are secrets in this poem. I have to uncode until I get it. Yeah. They're not really secrets. They're um, a little extra gestures of love, maybe, from the writer for people who want to be more gestures observant. Of order and meaning and structure. Yeah, that there's no end to how meaningful this poem can be. Going back to my own work. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> speaking of pride the circle of the proud no 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 but i do that with painting 
I will insert some small details here and there that maybe you wouldn't see, but I, yeah, it's, it's kind of like for a little extra, a little bit of something extra for someone who looks closely. Yeah. But I don't want to say that Dante's just adding a little extra. Well, why not? No. This poem is microscopic as well as macroscopic. You know what I mean? It has macroscopic, sublime, cosmic beauty, but it has, you know, it's just like nature, just like the book of nature. You zoom in on a tadpole, you're going to see some pretty sublime stuff. Or a daisy and you'll see very complicated math. Exactly. Mm. How wonderful is this simile at the very end of Canto 12? Um, a man with some strange thing lodged on his hat will stroll, not knowing, till the stares of others set him to wonder what they're staring at, whereat his hand seeks out and verifies what he suspected, thus performing for him the office he could not serve with his eyes. Just so I put my right hand to my brow, fingers outspread, and found six letters only of those that had been carved there down below by the angel with the keys to every grace. Again, it's a thing you can't see, but you know it's there. It's a kind of Bruegel-esque human observation. We've all walk. We've all noticed people walking down the street who don't know something about themselves. They get stares. I, just, I don't know. It's just so. Yeah, charming. and then you start feeling your face, right? Because you're just, like, "What am I not seeing on the?" <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm gonna. I wanted to ask you about Virgil's. He has a couple little discourses on love. Oh yeah, those are weird. And free will, and kind of alluded to these earlier. I'm not sure that he's getting it all right. So I wanted mm-hmm. your opinion about this. Canto 17. This comes right smack dab in the middle of the whole Divine Comedy. Canto 17. I mean, it depends on how you define middle. Is is the 50th canto of all 100 the middle? If it is, then Canto 16 <laughs> is the middle, but maybe 51. 50 or 51. It's hard to divide 100 in half and get a center. It's either 50 or 51. Yeah. Anyway, so this is Canto 17. Virgil is asked some questions about love. Mm-hmm. And he says this. Neither creator nor his creatures move, as you well know, but in the action of animal or of mind-directed love. So, this is the assertion that all moving, thinking beings, animals and gods, and everything in between, are only ever motivated by love. Some things they love are bad, some things they love are good, some amount of love is bad, some amount of love is good. Yeah. But love is the center of the Divine Comedy, literally. Mm-hmm. It's why Dante's on the journey. That's why he's on the journey. Virgil continues, Natural love may never fall to error. The other may, by striving to bad ends, or by too little or by too much fervor. Yeah, too little or too much. Beatrice thinks that he's had too little, and that's well, why he's there. Well, this is my question. Is is Virgil right to say that it's possible to have too much love? He continues, But when it turns to evil or shows more or less zeal than it ought for what is good, then the creature turns on its creator. So more or less zeal than it ought. Mm -hmm. Thus, you may understand that love alone is the true seed of every merit in you and of all acts for which you must atone. So love is the motivation for sin, Mm -hmm. but it's also the motivation for virtue and nobility. Mm -hmm. But do we buy this thing about it's possible to love too much? Yeah, it is possible to love too much. Especially if you're married and obsessed with a girl that died. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Is it? Does Dante agree with you? Because um, it might be possible to love the wrong things too much. Yeah, but that's 
loving too much, doesn't that just mean obsession? Imbalance? But I think Dante would say you're supposed to be obsessed with God. And people. It's not possible to love God too much. But that's overzealous, and he talks about zeal. Too much zeal. But this is, Vir- this is my thing. It's Virgil says that. Dante doesn't say that. Oh, yeah. And later Virgil says... Right, and his sin was that he didn't love Beatrice enough because he forgot about her. Yeah. According to Beatrice, that was his sin. And she is like the authority, apparently. Got angels working for her. I know. We'll see at the end here that the whole Divine Comedy is a kind of act of penance for briefly forgetting Beatrice, you know. I know, and it's crazy because getting to this to this point, it's like none of us would have guessed that it you know, <laughs> that that was going to turn out to be his sin and the reason why he had to travel through through hell, right? That he didn't, that he forgot about her, quote unquote. This is what I think. I don't know. Who knows? I want to know what you think. Maybe I'm wrong. Virgil is a kind of stoic. And in the Aeneid, Dido goes crazy with love for Aeneas. So crazy that she kills herself. Mm. And Aeneas, the hero, is this kind of like stoic warrior who sacrifices his own desires for external duties. I think for Virgil, love, excess of love, no matter what the object of your love, is always going to be bad. I think Dante is a lover. And if the object of your love is good and worthy of your love, obsession is what's called for. That There's no such thing as overzealous love for God. Just think about the end. To Dante, or you're saying that right now? I think this is what Dante thinks. Okay. Just making sure here. <laughs> I would. It would be easier to convince me that Dante is right than it would be to convince me that Virgil is right. What's wrong with overzealous love? Think about your children. Think about me. I was thinking it's creepy when spouses say they love their spouse more than their children, you know? Well, okay, think about your children. Could you be convinced that it's possible to love them too much? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. No, the answer is clearly no. Yeah. Yeah, but no, there could be... There is a wrong way to love them too much. Like, you could um, want to do everything but that's not love. for them that they want. You know, you but could, that's not love. You spoil. You... If you love them, you set them free. You know what I mean? You, you want them to flourish in the world as healthy, independent adults. So overprotective parents are selfish. They don't love. They love themselves more than their kids. Or their love turned to was unbalanced and turned to something weird. I am not claiming that Dante is claiming that there are bad versions of love or wrong ways to love. What I think he is illustrating here is the way through life is not to adopt some kind of stoic restraint. Yeah, the whole story is proof of that. (laughs) The whole story is proof that you have to swoon madly. In fact, even just the technicalities of the book are proof that he doesn't believe that. You know, he's going overboard with his form. It's an epic poem with very strict, strict he, rules. He ends the Vita Nuova, which is his series of love poems for Beatrice, by saying that he will, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but basically he announces that he will do something for her that has never been done for any woman. Oh, I see. And the next thing he produces, uh, well, not the very next thing, but this is clearly... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a sincere... You know... Oh. He delivers on the promise. So the, the Divine Comedy <laughs> is the product of mad love. Yeah, Overzealous clearly. love. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, this whole thing about stoic balance, balance, temperance, balance. Well, I might side with Dante. 
Yeah, more than with Virgil, yeah. Okay. Um, plus, Virgil says things here that aren't really logically, they don't really make sense. Like in Canto 18, he says, there's this whole thing about free will, and he says, well, we get, we all have instincts. Such instincts are in themselves not blamable or worthy. Instincts are kind of morally neutral. He says, reason must surely guard the threshold of consent. So you have to add this layer. Here, let me find it. Mirror so we can compare. Mark Musa translates this as the primal will is neither laudable or blamable. Hmm. He says, the prince, this is the principle on which is based the judgment of your merit according as it winnows out the good love from the bad. So your judgment in one translation or your reason in another translation is what's supposed to act on these instincts. Yeah. There's something flawed to me about that too, logically, because we're given these instincts by quote-unquote nature or God, but where does our reason or our judgment come from? Yeah. We, don't, we don't choose to be more reasonable or less. We, we don't create our own reason. We don't create our own ability to rein in these impulses. I know. You know what our I mean? Our ability to do that is it's the a, same as the primer, primal will. That's exactly what I think. It's just another impulse. Your willpower is also mysterious. Where does it come from? Why do some people have more? Why do some people have less? Yeah. We, we don't all have the same willpower. It's yeah. not like... Yeah, so... Yeah, that's interesting. It slightly doesn't make sense to me. Okay, um, quickly going here. We'll breeze over Canto 19 in which there's a soul enduring this penance and he explains why this particular penance is being given to them. He has an awareness that I don't think any of the souls in hell had. You know, like he's, we won't turn to it, but he says, we're, we're suffering this because in life we were too much this. And in Inferno, we never saw people doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what? Just in the same book that we were just talking about, I really liked that part that said, faster, faster, we have no time to waste, for time is love, cried others from behind. Strive to do good, that grace may bloom again. I thought that was just an extremely interesting idea. We have no time to waste, for time is love. This could be my own interpretation, but I'd, it helped me see time differently, rather than a punishment is its love, like given to us from some outside source. <laughs> And it's some sort of manifestation of love. And when you waste it, you're wasting love. I mean, isn't that a strange statement? Here's how Chiardi translates this. We could kind of triangulate here. Faster, faster. To be slow in love is to lose time. They say time is money, you know, so time is love. To spend time on something is you love what you spend time on. If you just look at that stupid app on your phone, you know that app on your phone that horrifyingly tells you oh, yeah. how you spend your time? You mean like the you spent 12 hours on your phone today thing? Well, but it'll break it down. <laughs> it'll kidding. tell you. Two hours on this app, 30 minutes on this app. Mm. It's a horrifying snapshot of what you love. You see where your heart is, there is your treasure. Yeah. You waste time, you waste love. Well, this is the, this is the terrace of the sloths, the slothful. So slothful, you know, according to Dante, people are people who are not, you know, they, they didn't go to church, you know. They didn't do the right thing, not because they didn't want to, not because they disagreed with it, because they liked sleeping in. They were lazy. So um, if you're slow in your love for the good and the true and the beautiful, then I think another thing that's being said here is that you're going to end up in purgatory longer. Mm. But it goes back also to Cato, you know, negligence, loitering, go, go, go. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, when you waste your life, when you waste time, that you're wasting love. Somebody's love or your ability to love things. Well, we're given time so that we can love things. Yeah. And also to show love, right? Well, experience love, yeah. Give and receive. Speaking of love, Canto 21 of Purgatory has to be one of my absolute favorite moments in the whole poem. Because they meet this poet named Statius. And, oh, man. Um, There's a lot of humor in this. Humor, it is a kind of wonderfully... Yeah, let me just read this. Statius explains certain things to them. What was that sound we just heard? He explains where this comes from. They ask him who he is, and he says, Statius is my name. And it's it, my name, still lives back there. I sang of Thebes, then of the great Achilles. These are the subjects of his epic poems. But found the second weight too great to bear. He died before he finished this. The sparks that were my seeds of passion came from that celestial fire which which has enkindled more than a thousand poets. I mean the flame of the Aeneid, the mother that brought forth, the nurse that gave suck to my song. Without it, I could not have weighed half a penny's worth. And to have lived back there in Virgil's time, I would agree to pass another year in, in the same banishment from which I climb. Virgil, at these last words, shot me a glance that said in silence, silence. (laughs) But but man's will is not supreme in every circumstance, for tears and laughter come so close behind the passions they arise from that they least obey the will of the most honest mind. I did not more than half smile. That shade fell still and looked me in the eye, for there the secrets of the soul are most betrayed. So may the road you travel lead to grace, he said. What was the meaning of the smile that I saw flash just now across your face? And then Dante continues, Now am I really trapped on either side. One tells me to be still, one begs me speak. So torn, I heave a sigh, and my sweet guide understands all its meaning. Never fear, he says to me, speak up, and let him know what he has asked so movingly to hear. At which I said, Perhaps my smiling thus has made you marvel, ancient soul, but now listen to something truly marvelous. This one who guides my eyes aloft is he, Virgil, from whom you drew the strength to sing the deeds of men and gods in poetry. The only motive for my smiling lay in your own words. If you conceived another as you love truth, pray put the thought away. He was bending to embrace my teacher's knee, but Virgil said, No, brother, shade you are and shade am I. You must not kneel to me. Why do I love this so much? Well, you should have read the next one, too. Okay, I'll read it. Yeah. And Statius Rising said, So may you find the measure of the love that warms me to you. With it, I lose all else from my mind, forgetting we are empty semblances and taking shadows to be substances. I like my translation more. It says, Now you understand how much my love for you burns deep in me when I forget about our emptiness and deal with shadows as with solid things. Yeah, it's probably better. It is better. It's- but this whole scene is beyond charming. It's just mm-hmm. so wonderfully endearing. I know. I love that somebody's a poet's admiration for another poet can be so strong that you for they he can literally forget that he is. He has to go and make himself beautiful. That he is imperfect. I mean, I know they're in purgatory, but this could be a, an amazing metaphor for reading in general or any kind of person you admire. You could forget that you're mortals, you know? Mm. You could forget about your emptiness and deal with shadows as with solid things. 
there's so much substance, right, in, in your love for some great art. But I love it way before that even. It's this wonderful staging. Why does Dante have this little performance in which Virgil gives the silent signal, no, don't talk. He's like, please, Dante, don't spill the beans. And Dante can't help it and kind of smirks. And Stacia's like, why are you smirking? And reveal the surprise. Ta-da! Dante didn't have to put this in the poem. He could have he could have just had Virgil say, oh, I'm Virgil. And Stacia's, what? You're Virgil? Let me bow to you. Or he, but it's this very... Or Stacia's could just know instantly that it's Virgil based why, on how he looks. Why create this? It's so intentional. It stands out so much to me. It's meaningful somehow. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a lesson there about humility. I'm I'm so charmed by Virgil in this moment. That's part of it for sure. Virgil, he's the guide, you know, he's he's the poet that has suckled all of the poets that come after him. Mm-hmm. But he has some kind of yeah humility or modesty. Like let's not get into it. I don't I don't need to be praised here, Dante. So let's. I know he's this shade who lives in hell, in a, in the inferno, and he is he's being worshipped like a god, right? But he doesn't want to be. We're all equals, yeah, that's what he says. We're all shades, so... Yeah, really has a special status in all those worlds. And Dante's little laugh, like, oh man, if you only knew what I knew. Like, just the, the, <laughs> human, the human joy of delivering a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah. It's a great thing to be able to do. Let me give you the good news. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like there's so much more meaning here that I'm able to articulate. I know. We'll move on. I have a bone to pick with Dante, though, because they're both kind of surprised that Statius is up here in Purgatory and not down below with the other pagan poets in Limbo. So they ask him, how'd you get here? And he says, oh, I was reading Virgil, the fourth eclogue of Virgil, and I took it to be a a prophecy of Christ's birth. So I was secretly baptized by these missionaries I found. And because I was baptized in secret and didn't have the guts to come out with it, Mm -hmm. I was quote-unquote slothful, right? Once converted, however, Statius kept his faith a secret and for his lack of zeal was consigned to spend 400 years on the terrace of the slothful. Yeah. So this kind of offends me because this is a totally fictional conversion story. Dante invents this. This is not a matter of history. Yeah. Why didn't Dante invent a conversion story for Virgil? I and, think and, he uh, wants his great idol to be a tragic figure, like unjustly dealt with so that we will feel even more for him, Virgil. It's like, yeah, there's no place for him in heaven, but look at all these people he has changed and touched and who he's guiding and his role in in this grand design. But it's not worth the pathos. Why? Dante finds every single conceivable moment an opportunity to put wise, noble pagans in heaven. Cato is another one, you know what I mean? So many of them end up there. To add insult to injury, Statius's conversion is instigated by Virgil. I don't know. It's I think it's just a... add some tragedy. I, if I wrote something like this, I would, I'd be tempted to treat my um, guide unjustly, so that you know, <laughs> it would be surprising. And it's puzzled me for a long time. It kind of makes me slightly mad at Dante. He ha- he clearly has so much love for Virgil, unabashed. I know, he's his father, he's his mother, he's his brother. So, is it jealousy? I could, I mean, that would make sense to me. It wouldn't make me less peeved at Dante. Is it just jealousy? Like, Statius isn't a rival. Statius is this minor poet nobody really reads anymore. So, yeah, he can come up to my level in heaven. 
is it just petty jealousy? Like I have to, I have to make sure that my close competitors don't ever get to come close to me. I don't think so. I really just think he's trying to turn Virgil into a more tragic character. But for what purpose? Like what? For why? us to love him more. We love Beatrice. We love Dante himself. They get to heaven, you know. Yeah, we but- could love Virgil a lot and have him be saved. I don't know. If you're fantasizing, this is your acid trip. Why not? I don't know. We'll move on. Unsolved mystery. Um, we'll pass, because I alluded to it earlier, we'll pass this wonderful simile of the quote-unquote sodomites passing each other in lines, kissing each other on the face like ants. Wasn't that lovely? Why ants? I don't think of ants as being very good kissers. <laughs> well, but then, because when they meet, they exchange information about what they've gathered through their face, so they kiss. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I get it. <laughs> Love and the right amount or for the right things. I think the implication there is that it creates a kind of healthy community. You know, ants live in this insanely organized and successful communities, you know. Mm-hmm. I love that Dante straight up calls Virgil his father here in um, Canto 23. Oh, well, actually, it's even better than that. He says, my more than father called to me. Dear son, come with me now. The time allotted us ought to be spent more profitably. My more than father. Which means what? You're making me retread old territory. This makes me mad. My more than father? You don't get to come with me. In Canto 27, there's this angel that tells them that if they want to get into the, the Garden of Eden, so they see in the distance this earthly paradise on the very top of the mountain, and this angel says to them, if you want to enter it, you have to pass through this wall of flame. And I love that Virgil tries to persuade... Dante in a couple ways, like, oh, don't worry, this flame won't hurt you. You will feel pain, but it won't hurt you. You could stay in it a thousand years and it won't burn any of your hairs. None of these quite convince him to jump through it until he says this, think, my son, you shall see Beatrice when this wall is passed. Mm-hmm. And then instantly, Dante jumps through. I know, this This one says, My loving father tried to comfort me talking of Beatrice as we moved. Already I can see her eyes, it seems. <laughs> it's like what you would say to a kid who's at the dentist, like, Don't worry, I can see that ice cream cone you're about to get. It's almost here, you know? Just endure it for five more minutes. I know. It's so wonderful. <laughs> and I liked here, too, while meditating, staring up at them, uh, at the stars, sleep overcame me. Sleep, which often brings the knowledge of events before the fact. I like this bit because it reminded me of what you've been talking about, about dreams. You've been reading about dreams, Jung, right? Uh-huh. And how they want to teach us things. The knowledge of events before the fact, you know, the subconscious maybe wants to, tells you what to do. Yeah. So you think you saw it in a dream, but before it happened, but really your subconscious yeah. told you to do a thing. Yeah, and Dante has had three dreams on his way up here. I, think, I don't remember where the third one comes. He, he's about to have another one that's kind of prophetic, but yeah. Imagine dreams in purgatory. Important dreams. Things are told to him in these dreams that matter. Mysteries are so important in these books, aren't they? Half informations. Well, okay, to kind of like set, calm myself down, my rage at... Dante's anti-Virgilness. It it is true that the cerebral mind, the rational mind, the intellectual mind has limits. Mm-hmm. That this is only half, or maybe even less than half, of the way we live in the world. The other half is 
emotions, instinct, intuition, maybe even belief or faith, whatever that means, or, find- or dream or the unconscious. I mean, there are many, many other categories of life that are important other than fact or reason. Mm-hmm. And so I think Virgil, according to Dante, for Virgil, there is only fact and reason. So if that's how you choose to live in the world, ignoring all these other aspects of humanity, the intuitive, the emotional, the unconscious, the dreamlike, the instinctual, the, the, the passionate, then you're limited. That, don't, that can only get you so far. You'll have a limited kind of stunted half of a life, mm-hmm. you know? So Virgil attempts these discourses like, oh, this is free will and this is love, but also Dante is being educated up this mountain in dreams. I know. In imagery, in art, in painting, in emotion, in symbol. These things all kind of transcend or subvert or obfuscate the rational mind. Yeah. Their friendship or whatever father-son relationship really does seem like a perfect combination of what we should be, right? Sense and and sensibility. (laughs) Yin and yang, sense and sensibility, yeah. They need each. Well, Dante needs him. Yeah, it's tricky. I don't know. I mean, why don't they stay together if that's the case? I miss Virgil. When he leaves... He's like, an, it's like an amputated limb. I really feel an absence. Oh, so maybe you're right. Like they do need each other as a symbol for the limits of the cerebral mind or rational thought. I can see why Dante can't come into heaven because Dante, sorry, I can see why Virgil can't come into heaven. Heaven, if we take heaven to be not a place, but a kind of fully realized well-being to live in heaven is to fully realize your well-being as a human. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No. Well, Christ says the kingdom of God is within you, so, and that we shouldn't look for it here or there. So I'm taking it to be that it's not a place. Oh, I see. But that it's it's a state of being. It's right. a state of being in which you are as your your well being is maximalized. Right. You love passionately the things that you should love. Your mm-hmm. vices are not the master of you. Not that you've purged yourself of vices, but they're not the master of you. Mm-hmm. So, in order to get into this quote unquote heaven, in which your well-being is fully maximalized. Mm-hmm. You can't limit yourself to living an only cerebral or intellectual or rational life. So that's why, as a symbol, Virgil can't come into heaven. He's not because he's not emotional enough. Because there's no place in heaven for. It's not that Virgil. I don't know. I'm he's not willing like, to succumb to give in to um, this place where you have to let go of a certain rationale. That's 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 what I kind of mean. And again, I'm kind of freestyling here. I'm not exactly sure this this is I could be way out on a limb, but it's not that Virgil is guilty of anything per se. It's that just his way of living isn't complete and won't lead to complete hmm. self-individuation, aka heaven. You know, we all know those people who are who excel in one dimension, mm-hmm. but only on one dimension. Black and white. Virgil doesn't Does love Dante live in the gray. It's not, it's not that, well, I, I mean, I don't want to disagree with you per se, but maybe a better way of phrasing it would be dimensions. Like Virgil lives two-dimensionally. Dante has these other dimensions. Don, mm. Virgil doesn't love passionately. He doesn't dream. He doesn't swoon. You know, Virgil's always, Doesn't he? I Dante's haven't read the Aeneid, so I have no idea. Well, the hero is very duty-bound, you know. This is my duty. I'm going to do it. Mm. There's no moment of a ban. Passion without a ban. I mean... No, the passionate, 
Yeah, no, the passionate lover, the unbridled lover is Dido, and she's clearly a kind of like negative case study, a cautionary tale. Interesting. So Dante, of course, would look, see that, look at that, and be like, I, I want a character who is right in, its un, in his unbridled passion. Yeah, I want I want unbridled passion. <laughs> Enter Beatrice. And Beatrice herself believes in unbridled passion and doesn't think Dante had enough of it. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. How great is this flame that is hotter than boiling glass? I love that detail. But can we talk for a second about this flame? So this flame purifies him. Mm-hmm. I mean... You pass through fires in your life, right? Well, yeah, I mean... Can they make you better? Everybody has... Yeah. I mean, they can. Can choose to look at these fires as what can they do for me rather than what are they doing to me. I went through a, a seer of a few years of really awful depression and anxiety um, because of some unexplained health problems. And and that's how I found painting. And I don't think I would have, I would have found painting maybe possibly ever if I hadn't, if I hadn't been forced to look for something good, very urgently look for something to improve my life. So what part? Some, to make meaning. So what parts of you were burned away in that fire? Um, I can say, definitely say the part that be- believed that I deserved good things. You know, just, I think that's a weird way of living life. We don't get rewards for everything we do. Sometimes good things happen to us. And of course, if you try to make yourself available for good things to happen, like, you know, through certain actions, working towards a goal, you know, being diligent and ambitious and whatnot. But but yeah, you don't just, there's no rule that says that you deserve to be healthy, that you deserve to be happy even. Yeah. So that that was a useful, very useful lesson, hard to accept, but I think I finally did accept it. And, and I'm not a pessimist because of it now, rather feel like I just am more open to accepting that things don't go as planned. You're more resilient. Yeah. Um, you're closer to living in heaven. You know what I mean? Back to our other conversation about the state of being that is known as heaven. There, were, there are certain immaturities in all of us that we need to leave behind if we need to enter a higher state of well-being. Mm-hmm. And that higher state of well-being doesn't mean that it's less painful, that it involves less pain. It could involve more pain. Mm. It involves a greater, more developed inner resilience. Things are burned off of us that were weak or bad or flawed or sick. Yeah, or and we can choose. Back. Right, and we can choose whether we want to uh, regress or progress, right? Yeah, these fires are, you know, maybe daily. You know, they're kind of cyclical. This is a process. Yeah, Dante didn't have to go through the fire, but he, but he chose to. And it did hurt. Yeah. They, it's hotter than boiling glass. Yeah. And in life, you can't always choose whether to go through the fire, but you can choose whether to accept it or not. If you fight against it the whole time, it's it's just a waste of time and energy, and it just hurts you. This is exactly the state of the, of the suffering in purgatory. I mean, they're going through suffering, but they have chosen to let it purify them. Yeah. They have a grand vision. So if you pass through these fires and let them let them improve you, you enter, quote-unquote, a kind of paradisiacal state. And Virgil's last words in Canto 27 are, 
to me, life-changing, really. Oh, yeah. And we'll probably spend too much time on them. Do you want to read them? Yeah, starting at I led you here? Or? Yeah, so this, wh- wh- where are we situationally? He's, they've passed through the fire. They're kind of entering Eden. Eden is on top of this mountain, the earthly paradise. And they, as they enter it, Virgil says the last words he ever says in the poem. He's talking to Dante. You now have seen, my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the place where my discernment now has reached its end. I led you here with skill and intellect. From here on, let your pleasure be your guide. The narrow ways, the steep, are far below. Behold the sun shining upon your brow. Behold the tender grass, the flowers, the trees, which here the earth produces of itself. Until those lovely eyes rejoicing come, which tearful once urged me to come to you, you may sit here, or wander, as you please. Expect no longer words or signs from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome and free, and not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. Oh, man. There's so much wisdom in this moment, I think. Mm. I know, and it's quite surprising. As you please. Suddenly there's all this freedom. Let pleasure be your guide. You know, pleasure is the law here. It's so great. Not to heed to pleasure would be wrong. Yeah. It's incredible. Now that he's gone through so much, through the inferno and the fires and whatnot, and whatnot, (laughs) now he's able to handle pleasure. Yeah. He knows how to experience it without letting it corrupt him yeah it's a kind of this is how i read it that's exactly how i read it it's a kind of um you have to go through a kind of apprenticeship a kind of humiliation a kind of period long period of obedience Mm -hmm. this is what virgil means when he says you are past the steep ways past the narrow part Mm -hmm. we began our discussion of the divine comedy by virgil telling dante that if you want to get up there you have to go to hell first it's kind of, you have to, Nietzsche has this triple symbolic metaphor of the camel, the lion, and the child. So people go through stages of these where they're the camel, a beast of burden. They have to bear a burden on steep and narrow paths. But if they do that, if they train themselves and humble themselves and are patient and learn strength, they can become a lion. And then they become a child again. This is his last stage where they're free to obey their pleasures because their pleasures, it's not its not like, I don't think it's like now Dante is not capable of committing a sin. I think it's more like he's not at the whim of negative impulses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And adults can enter, a few rare adults can enter the second childhood where they, here is your will upright, free, and whole. And you would be an error not to heed whatever your own impulse prompts you to. We should be hearing some version of Paolo and Francesca in hell there, like, Obey your impulses. That sounds very sinful, doesn't it? Obey your impulses. But there's a version yeah. of that that if we become masters of ourselves, then our impulses can never be sinful. Right. The adulterous couple there in the beginning wouldn't is not ready to let pleasure guide them. Because they haven't done that hard work on the steep and narrow way, you know? Right. Um, it, yeah, isn't that fascinating? You have to, you have to basically live... At least until you're like middle-aged, basically, and experience all that life to maybe one day 
begin to be able to be wise enough or experienced enough to to give yourself to pleasure without hurting yourself or others mm -hmm. what does that look like in real life i'm going to read you some nietzsche i think it's analogous he's making the same point here giving style to one's character a great and rare art it is exercised by those who see all the strengths and weaknesses of their own nature and then comprehend them in an artistic plan until everything appears as art and reason. Here, there has been a great amount of second nature added. There, a portion of first nature has been taken away. In both cases, with long exercise and daily labor at the task, here the ugly, which does not permit of being taken away, has been concealed. There, it has been reinterpreted into the sublime. Much of the vague, which refuses to take form, has been, has been reserved and utilized for the perspectives. It is meant to give a hint of the remote and immeasurable. In the end, when the work has been completed, it is revealed how it was the constraint of the same taste that organized and fashioned it in whole or in part. Whether the taste was good or bad is of less importance than one thinks. It is sufficient that it was a taste. It will be the strong, imperious natures which experience their most refined joy in such constraint, in such confinement and perfection under their own law. The passion of their violent volition lessens at the sight of all disciplined nature, all conquered and ministering nature. Even when they have palaces to build and gardens to lay out, it is not to their taste to allow nature to be free. It is the reverse with weak characters who have not power over themselves and hate the restriction of style. They feel that if this repugnant constraint were laid upon them, they would necessarily become vulgarized under it. And then he talks about Goethe specifically as an example of this. What Goethe wanted was totality. He fought the mutual extraneousness of reason, senses, feeling, and will. He disciplined himself into wholeness. He created himself. Goethe conceived a human being who would be strong, highly educated, skillful in all bodily matters, self-controlled, reverent towards himself, and who might dare to afford the whole range and wealth of being natural, being strong enough for such freedom. The man of tolerance, not from weakness, but from strength, because he knows how to use his advantage, even that from which the average nature would perish. The man for whom there is no longer anything that is forbidden, unless it be weakness. Beethoven broke all the quote-unquote rules that were established by Mozart and Bach only after mastering these rules. Yes. You know what I mean? So you master these rules, and then they, it's not that, and then they don't apply to you anymore. There is no right or wrong. You know what I mean? Beethoven, he, he, inv he creates a whole new way of mus being musical. He creates himself. So do you believe that you have to, this relates to the idea that you have to know the rules to be able to break them? Well, in the Italian, yes, I do. Because in the Italian, the line that Chardy translates as you are past the steep ways, past the narrow part, the word for steep is erte. Okay. This is the word for steep. The word for narrow is arte, which is oh. also the word for art. Interesting. So it means, um, this word can mean art, but it can also mean fitted, fitted together, narrow, you know, like tight, tightly fitted together, mm -hmm. well made. Everything is in its fit place, you know? Yeah, so, that couldn't apply to this entire poem more, right? I'm know, thinking of... He, he's making a moral comment, a spiritual mm -hmm. comment, a psychological comment, and an artistic comment in the space of a few lines. But I wonder, because I, I feel like the, 
the best use of poetic form is when you keep the rules most of the time and then every once in a while kind of explode, you know, the form by breaking a few rules. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Dante does that at all in Italian. I don't think he wildly... I mean, you love that moment at the very end of the purgatory where he says, well, the, the limits of the art constrain me. I wish I could keep singing forever, uh-huh. but I have, I have to stop now because of the math of the poem is over. I've reached Canto 33. I know. <laughs> but, but the point is that Dante has created his own cosmos. Dante is now not operating inside of the rules that other people have set up for himself. He's created I his see. own rules so content. And, and is obeying those rules. I see. I mean, the whole the whole book of Purgatory is proof of this because this is a mm. very underdeveloped. We talked about this. It's a very underdeveloped doctrine. It did exist in you know, the versions of Purgatory and in, in Christian doctrine before Dante, a hundred or two hundred years before Dante. But it's he's breaking his own rule. He's breaking the rules by breaking his uh, by making his own. <laughs> by making his own, and then he's he's loyal to his own rules, but they need not bear any resemblance to. You know, Beethoven's rules are not Bach's. Dante's rules are not Aristotle's or Thomas Aquinas's. Or Do you think, I really don't know a lot about his life. Is this like the last thing he wrote? Yeah, um, he died. He finished it and then basically died. Interesting. But, so I wonder if he viewed all of his work that came before as a sort of passing through fires and um, then finally he was able to let pleasure be his guide. Well, he was already in Canto One of the Inferno. He says to Virgil, it is you from whom I learned the sweet new style. So the Vita Nuova mm-hmm. is already praised for being something new, mm-hmm. a kind of poetry that isn't really written. You know, mm-hmm. he kind of, so he's already doing this before. I see. But I want to talk for a few more minutes about how this applies to us in our own lives. Like, yeah. We're talking about artists and Goethe and all these, these people who, and Beethoven who break their rules and transcend norms. But for, you know, for those of us who go to Walmart and make dinner and do the dishes, I mean, I, I think this is immensely relevant. You know, it is, it is possible to achieve a kind of self-mastery that enables us to live virtuous lives, but lives that are dictated only by our own pleasures what Emerson would call whim. You know what I mean? We don't... Like, if you're in a good place, there's not few wrong decisions you can make mentally. That's right. It's not that you're like, oh, murder doesn't apply to me. I'll go on a killing spree. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying you do what is best for you and the people that you love, and you do these things because it's best for you and the people that you love, not because the society expects you to do it. You know, it's like... um, most often we obey the rules because we want social approval. Not because we feel it's our second nature. I mean... Precisely. That's precisely it. We want social approval. It's a kind of maybe positive peer pressure, like, oh, don't, you know, act this way and you'll get a promotion. And everyone says, okay, I'll act this way because I want a promotion. But that's the elementary school of... That's not real virtue. Yeah. You know, it's not real virtue. Yeah. What you want is to arrive in a place where you act totally unselfconsciously. Virgil says to Dante, go into paradise. Let your own good pleasure be your guide. Do what you want. Do whatever you want. Because now you have passed through those fires. You can be trusted enough. Nothing that you want will be bad. Mm. And if people think it's bad, if they say it's bad, then they don't really, they misunderstand. Mm. 
You know what I mean? People say Beethoven is late quartets aren't music. They don't get it, you know? They're behind in some way. Hmm. Have I made this point? Yeah. Emerson in Self-Reliance. I'll just read one more bit. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so and confided themselves childlike, there we go, to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protected corner, not cowards fleeing before a revolution, but guides, redeemers, and benefactors, obeying the almighty effort and advancing on chaos and the dark. I think Emerson's self-reliance doctrine is precisely this. Mm-hmm. If mother and father say it's bad for you, then you have to say, I have to do what is right for me. Whatever Virgil does, whatever they are up to, Virgil and Dante always assume that it's always uh, some sort of metaphor for literature and reading. So if you read this last part here as an analogy for reading, what do you think that could mean? Yeah. Expect no longer words or signs from me. Now is your will upright. Are yeah. they now equals and he no longer needs Virgil's influence? This is a very good question. I, I'm encountered with this question all the time at work because these young adults come into college and a lot of them don't have great taste in what to read. Mm-hmm. So they need to submit. Uh, this is what I think. <laughs> Maybe it makes me a horrible teacher. They need to be humble enough. They're young. Mm-hmm. They need to be humble enough to submit to a period in which they're told, this is good. Mm-hmm. Read it. Mm-hmm. Put down that book that you're reading and read this instead. It's better. Now, you might not immediately believe me that it's better. It might be harder to read. Mm-hmm. It might not be instantly better. But you're going to spend the next few years here being taught how to appreciate things that are better. The steep and narrow way. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think if that education succeeds, it doesn't always. It depends a lot on the attitude of the, the student, you know, to be that humble and say, I'll believe you. But yeah. also the teacher. Or like, I'll give it a try. I'll okay. give it a try. Yeah, I'll be patient and believe you and postpone my gratification and yeah. submit to this apprenticeship. But also, you know, there are bad teachers galore. You know, I have many bad days as a teacher. The teacher also has to have good taste, and that's not always a guarantee. Um mm-hmm. But I think in an ideal situation, after this quote-unquote apprenticeship, the student grows up and has been shown why Shakespeare matters, why Dante matters, and then can say to him or herself, I'm going to read whatever I want. I'll let pleasure be my guide. I'll let pleasure be. I mean, Paradise Lost for me is not a book that gives me much pleasure, for example. So I've stopped feeling guilty about that. <laughs> I don't really care that it's not a book for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm living a life in which... Uh, I think maybe the reason... Oh, I'll shut up. It's a horrendous ramble. Well, this is like your favorite part. But I think the reason it's... I think the reason this strikes me so hard is because I've spent most of my life worried way too much about what people think of me. I have this social anxiety, craving social approval, paranoid about social rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this, my love for this is completely aspirational. I want to enter a place in which I can, where the sun shines upon my brow. You know, I, I, every one of these details seems significant to me. Like, why should I 
care about what other people think of me if the sun is shining on me just as it's shining on them. I have access to all of the sweet things in life. Mm. I don't need my love of the sunshine to be approved. <laughs> you know what I mean? See there the sun that shines upon your brow, the sweet new grass, the flowers, the fruited vines which spring up without need of seed or plow. You know? Mm-hmm. Expect no more of me in word or deed. Here your will is upright, free and whole. And you would be in error not to heed whatever your own impulse prompts you to. So yeah, I think that relates to the way I read, the way I teach, the way I parent, the way I do literally everything. Mm. And it will, will, you know, if I ever achieve this, involve a lot of fires, I think. Well, yeah, of course. You know, I'll have to, I'll have to let, I'll have to burn off who knows what pettinesses and mental imperfections and all kinds of flaws and vices and Right. And tendencies to, like for me, to take the easy way. Or <laughs> if you have passed through enough fires and you're no longer in a place where you only choose the easy way out all the time, then yeah, pleasure being your guide is going to work out much better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because my pleasure right now would be to do all the easy things. <laughs> and I would miss out on a lot of things. It was like learning the piano. You know, my, my mom really wanted me to practice the piano. I was in piano lessons like most kids. I hated it. I didn't practice. I didn't submit. I should have let that fire burn me. Yeah. I chose to not walk through that fire of piano practice. Yeah. I chose to not walk through that fire. Or to and be pushed through it not rather than... That's walk. right. And it would have been painful. Piano lessons and piano practice, that's hard. Yeah. But I would have come out free with this freedom. Freedom knowing that you have self-discipline enough, right? And eventually, when you, the more you teach yourself that you can do hard things and have self-discipline, then eventually you are going to be the lord of yourself. Exactly. Imagine the skill of playing the piano, but multiplied by the thousands of other skills that a human can have. Mm-hmm. Reading, uh, parenting, romantic relationships, yeah. manual labor. Like, Imagine a human being who has gone through all those fires, mastered all these arts, my goodness, they could live whatever life they wanted, knowing that it's going to be... Yeah, and and your your pleasures change, right? The harder, the more hard things you go through and face, you know, bravely, courageously, the more noble your desires yeah. are going to be and your pleasures. I think that's exactly right. The more noble they'll be. So this isn't, this isn't Dante being free to sin. This isn't me expressing a desire to transcend... You know, I don't know, right or wrong, or the human, you know, the laws of the country. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think you purge away. You know what is destructive behavior, mm-hmm. and you're free to avoid it. Yeah. Like that Goethe quote: "Like it's not that you're without weakness; it's that your weaknesses don't rule you." So Goethe is totally comfortable sitting there in his home in Frankfurt, spending the afternoon on writing, writing the most outrageous poem, Faust, that no one will ever comprehend. You know what I mean? <laughs> People are, we should do that next. But you know, and it's a good example. Like, he could have been like, oh, this isn't what people are expecting of me. Uh, they'll get confused. This is so weird. He's he like, didn't. I'm a lord of myself, and I trust that my impulse is good. Yeah, I think we should move on. I think we've made, <laughs> I think we've made the point. The first person that Dante sees now that he's lord of himself is this woman, mm. Matilda. What was your impression of her? Yeah, she's strange. She's a strange, quiet creature. <laughs> And very, yeah, evasive, right? Almost. She doesn't come running towards him or anything. She's kind, kind of, of has um, to pull information out of her. 
ghost-like. Yeah. Um, She's more a landscape than person. Maybe one reason we're getting that impression from her is because Dante doesn't... Every person that Dante meets until now, he says, what is your name? Where were you born? Yeah. He doesn't ask Matilda these questions. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. Maybe he assumes. I think m- me as a reader, I assume that she was just a part of that mm. landscape and she, not human, never mm. was human. Human, so you know? And he instantly intuits this. He gets it so he doesn't bother asking. Yeah, maybe there's just like this instant like reverence. And the, there's or, no point in finding out where she's from because he's not going to be finding common ground with her. There could be. I mean, I've always been very touched by those moments that Dante says, who are you? Where are you from? Yeah. But maybe now as Lord of himself, he's like, oh, I'll be my pleasures. Okay. I'll stop asking that question because maybe I don't really care all the time. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. The rules change for him. Maybe that's just general point. The rules of interactions change for Dante at this point. I love this uh, very saucy. As nymphs of old went wandering alone. This is Canto 29. As nymphs of old went wandering alone through the deep shaded woodlands, some pursuing and others seeking to evade the sun. So then she started up the riverside, and on my own bank I kept pace with her. So nymphs are this pagan symbol, naked, free spirits, mm-hmm. kind of sexual beings, and he's making this quite erotic metaphor. How do you know they're naked? Well, that's what a nymph is. I mean, they're always naked. Have you never seen a classical painting? <laughs> Don't yeah. you think this is? A, I mean, this is. Yeah, isn't... you're right about the rules are not different because I was very. I couldn't help but notice that, according to male characters in the book, who say you know they they walk around with like their cleavages. If only they they wouldn't be laughing if they knew what was in store for them, like punishment yeah. wise. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying it's interesting that now. Women are naked, and it's there's innocence in it. I think there's a healthy eros. It's a startling thing for Dante to do, to marry pagan erotics with Christian uh, morals. But for Dante, these, these need not be separated. Mm-hmm. He sees this parade. These elders, this parade has many ingredients. It's something out of a mushroom trip or the book of Ezekiel. <laughs> or maybe that's the same thing. <laughs> um Oh my gosh, it's so wild. It's like one of the weirdest things I've ever read. The books of the Bible are represented by these elders, which is interesting because it's like the word made flesh, you know. There's this chariot mm-hmm. it's being pulled by a griffin, who we learn from the notes is symbolized as Christ. Why is the griffin a symbol of Christ? Well, because he's divine and human, and the griffin is lion and bird, kind of like something, Obviously. From, something from the heavens and something from the ground. Mm. Don't you find it interesting that... The main protagonist and the antagonist, you know, Satan and Christ are animals. I don't think Christ is the griffin. But represents him. It represents him. But yeah, you're right. This is everything Dante does defies expectation, so much so that it's heretical. That's what I mean about Mm -hmm. the who cares what people say, kind of your own, you're free. You want to put Beatrice, not your wife, not Christ... You know, as the pinnacle of your aspirations. I know. Do it. It's not Christ trying um, to help you repent. Do you want to read the bit where Beatrice, there's like several Beatrice moments, but where should we begin here? I know. It's, with our, it's How should we introduce, where should we begin to introduce Beatrice? Mm. So the griffin sitting on this chariot is Beatrice. The griffin is pulling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we could start where it says, Then one of them as sent from heaven, saying, um, Veni sponsa de Libano, 
which means um, come bride from Lebanon. And that's from the Song of Solomon. Um, the, the most sexual book in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they sang, Veni sponsa di Libano three times, and all the other voices followed his. Sometimes as day approaches, I've seen all of the eastern sky a glow of rose, the rest of heaven beautifully clear, the sun's face rising in a misty veil of tempering vapors that allow the eye to look straight at it for a longer time. Even so, within a nebula of flowers that flowed upward from angels' hands and then poured down, covering all the chariot, appeared a lady. Over her white veil and olive crown, and under her green cloak, her gown, the color of eternal flame. And instantly, though many years had passed since last I stood trembling before her eyes, captured by adoration, stunned by awe, my soul that could not see her perfectly still felt, succumbing to her mystery and power the strength of its enduring love. No sooner were my eyes struck by the force of the high, piercing virtue I had known before I quit my boyhood years, than I turned to the left, with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arms when he is frightened or needs comforting, to say to Virgil, not one drop of blood is left inside my veins that does not throb. I recognize signs of the ancient flame. But Virgil was not there. We found ourselves without Virgil, sweet father, Virgil to whom for my salvation I gave up my soul. Oh, I want to cry. <laughs> I know. Virgil's gone. It is so sad to me. I find it so interesting because I'm a person who always has obsessions. Always. With various things. And it's not possible for me to have two at the same time. Two obsessions. And Ver and Dante is obsessed mm. with Virgil and Beatrice. And as soon as Beatrice comes into the picture, mm. Virgil vanishes into thin air. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Can't serve two masters. No. He can't. And that's another example of how fully and wholly Dante loves, right? Yes. This isn't a restrained love no. like Virgil was talking about. No, it's so powerful that they can only be one <laughs> at a time. She comes in this chariot under a rain of flower blossoms that are being sprinkled by angels, mm -hmm. shining brilliantly. All of the blood in Dante's veins throbs is throbbing. <laughs> In her presence, you know. I can't even see her totally she was yet. Instantly smitten by this force and transfixed, right? I don't and and just like those hymns earlier in the Purgatory that you can't hear fully, but you you yeah you, you don't hear all the words. So he's also seeing her not perfectly. You know, she, she's um, wearing a cape. Well, she's or cloak. She's a deity. She's kind of been deified. She's so shiny. And brilliant. That he doesn't even need to see her face to feel that. Well, that he can't. It's a kind of like Moses on Sinai. Like, he needs to acclimate to her light slowly, bit by bit. She'll come closer, and then she'll, eventually she'll take off her veil. But if he were to see all of her glory in once, like Zeus, you know, if he reveals, there's a few times in the myths where he reveals all of his glory at once, and the people who behold it instantly shrivel up and die, you know? Yeah, so or Arjuna like, with Krishna, right? Yeah, that's right. That's He's right. given this vision and it yeah. overwhelms him. So Beatrice, he has to kind of like baby step his way into looking at her. Mm. And he's so excited, like a child who wants to run to its mom and say, Mom, look at this. He turns to Virgil. He turns around expecting to see him and he's gone. And it just breaks my heart. I shouldn't be so... 
I know that it happened so quickly, just vanished. My reaction to this is way too sentimental. I don't think I think this is a kind of quote unquote misreading. But one thing I wanted to mention actually is that misreading is good. Vir- Statius misreads Virgil yeah. and it saves him. Yeah. So I'm okay here with. I know that I'm over sentimentalizing. Misreading just means you read what you needed to hear. Uh, hear. It means that in some small way, I think I'm following my pleasure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I think. This just brings me to tears. I'm so moved by this. It's the saddest thing that his best friend, his his guide, his father, his mother, you know, I it know. Gives like the, the most intimate bond, you know, the person who has nursed him. And he puts himself in this very diminutive position of the child. And he's just so full of excitement. He wants to share it with his mother. And what would it feel like for a child to turn around and not see his mother? Devastating. Instant orphan. It's, it would be so devastating. So I'm just wrenched. This is a heart-wrenching moment for me. I know. It's such an... I, I kind of was expecting there to be like this grand farewell, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I could just picture Virgil, you know, giving some some more um, wise words and <laughs> some more speeches. Um, and it would all be very formal. Dante we, would be sad. And but we see him kind of like fading into the background like a cowboy in a Western film in the sunset, you know. Riding on some weird animal with <laughs> yeah, that's right. more than two wings. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was a very... It was very just, shocking, like the rug gone. pulled out from under, right? It's just totally gone. In this huge moment of climax, vanish Ugh. he vanishes and Beatrice appears. It's very and spooky. I think part of the whiplash I feel in this moment is that Beatrice isn't exactly the same type of companion. She's not a substitute for Virgil's nurturing, patient, fatherly, affectionate... You know what I mean? She, I know. How, who would, the whole, yeah, this whole book, or, you know, um, this this new place that Dante's in has um, Eden, I guess, right? Yeah. Has prepared us for Mother Eve, right? For, and there's all these mother images, and there's that woman at the beginning, and yeah. there's all these gentle female presences, and they're comforting. <laughs> And peaceful, and then even Virgil turns to a mother, right? Yeah, that's right. And that, so we expect, yes, that Beatrice and he will kind of like embrace. I don't know, maybe they'll she, kiss. Yeah, she will now be or the she'll mother. Be like, <laughs> the epitome of like gentle decorum, loving. You know, yeah, she'll take Virgil's place. Oh man! And instead, she's what? Honestly, it sounds mean, but like she sounds exactly like a petty little girl, a snubbed. Yeah, petty. I don't know about little girl because... There's a mix there. <laughs> she's anything but little. I know what you mean, but she definitely um, reminds me of of an immature. How wrong would we be to say that she's mean? These are. This is what she yeah, says. Yeah, she is. Dante, do not weep yet, though Virgil goes. Do not weep yet, for soon another wound shall make you weep far hotter tears than those. It's not exactly comforting. I know. Don't like, cry because... You're going to hurt even more in a second here. I'm going to skip this simile for now. Look at me well. I am she. I am Beatrice. How dared you make your way to this high mountain? Did you not know that here a man lives in bliss? I lowered my... Dante then talks. I lowered my head and looked down at the stream. But then... But when I saw myself reflected there, I fixed my eyes upon the grass for shame. I shrank as a wayward child in his distress shrinks from his mother's sternness. For the taste of love grown wrathful is a bitterness. She paused. Then she chastises him for... Where's the moment where she actually lays it on? Oh, here, here. 
31, so towards the end. There was a time my countenance sufficed, as I let him look into my young eyes for guidance on the straight path to his goal. But when I passed into my second age and changed my life for life, that man you see straight after others and abandoned me. When I had risen from the flesh to spirit, become more beautiful, more virtuous, he found less pleasure in me, loved me less, and wandered from the path that leads to truth, pursuing simulacra of the good, which promise more than they can ever give. I prayed that inspiration come to him through dreams and other means. In vain I tried to call him back. So little did he care. See, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. This is image. This seems immature, like a little girl in the way that she is playing mind games. You know what I mean? But Dante loves it. Oh, yeah. Because it's just tough love, right? She's just showing him how much she cares by giving him grief, right? I hate how much I love you. <laughs> I'm mad at you because I care so much about you. I think Dante has created the woman of his dreams, and I think the woman <laughs> yeah. of his dreams regularly gets angry at him. There's a kind of strange... But I mean, angry at him because she cares so much. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird kind of... And he's always, like, groveling. Mm-hmm. It's this very weird kind of S&M dynamic, don't you think? Yeah, it's weird. In fact, the very first simile... So she says, don't, don't, don't cry because you're about to cry even more. <laughs> That's already weird. Mm-hmm. This is what Dante describes her as. As an admiral takes his place at stern or bow to observe the handling of his other ships and spur all hands to do their best. So now on the chariot's left side, I saw appear when I turned at the sound of my own name, that lady who had been half veiled from view by the flowers of the angel revels. So what is she like? She's like an admiral on a ship, who whips his crew into shape. Virgil, where are you? I miss Virgil so much, (laughs) you know? So his absence is even more starkly noticed here. I mean, as shocking as Satan was at the end of the Inferno, I'm even more shocked at the personality of Beatrice. I know, these are like kids' games. You know what I mean? Like, you know how boys, like, will... um... But is there a way, I, I, I know what you mean, they're kids' games, but I think this illustrates a point that I've been trying to make badly throughout our conversations, which is that why is Dante great? Because he has the audacity to turn his own private fetishes into a new religion. Mm-hmm. So they've become... A feisty Eve. <laughs> and, and I don't think this is immature. I mean, this is the height of world literature. You know, they become... Oh, yeah, I'm not just calling the writer immature. These are Beethoven's late string quartets. We we look at this and think, what is going on? This is so strange. I don't get it. Mm. But that's part of the appeal is that they break every conceivable mold. This isn't Christianity anymore. It it kind of is. It's using that same vocabulary, the same symbols, but it's 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 the religion of Dante, and it's yeah, it's it's bodily, it's sexual, it's. Mystical, playful. mysterious, playful, humorous. I mean, he's, he looks so... In Canto 31, he gets closer to Beatrice, and she takes her veil off. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, it's like that stereotype of Italians. They're so passionate. Their lovers always yelling at each other through windows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you put a version of that into uh, the Garden of Eden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Dante says this in Canto 31, Nothing in art or nature could call forth such joy for you. 
I guess I'm rereading things you've already read. Such joy for you, a sight of that fair body which clothed me once and now sifts back to earth. So Dante loves Beatrice's body, you know? Mm. And further proof of this is she takes her veil off and Beatrice says, look deep, look well, however your eyes may smart. We have led you now before those emeralds from which love shot his arrows through your heart. So Beatrice's eyes are emeralds that have pierced Dante's heart. Beatrice's eyes. So it's not her personality. Mm-hmm. It's not her spirit. I know. It's her beauty that makes her um, divine. It's not exactly her personality. At, at I think it might be that too, but not yet so it's far. <laughs> a fully embodied love. This isn't a kind of like platonic spirits commingling. Yeah. A thousand burning. So he looks into Beatrice's eyes. And this is what the poem says. A thousand burning passions, every one hotter than any flame, held my eyes fixed to the loosened eyes she held fixed on the griffin. Like sunlight and a glass, the twofold creature shone from the deep reflection of her eyes, now in the one, now in the other nature. She's looking at the griffin. Yeah. He's looking at her. So in her eyes, they're so bright and glossy and shiny that he can see the griffin, the reflection. I see So any access he's getting to Christ is through Beatrice's body. Hmm. That, in a nutshell, is religion to Dante. Yeah. You know, before I had read this, I, you know, my whole life I've been hearing people talk about the Divine Comedy, and I always wanted to read it. And, you know, Beatrice, I, I pictured her as some kind of, you know, perfect, you know, divine creature who is basically, you know, sits on God's right side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was a shock. A pleasant shock for me. It's better this way. It is. It really is, yeah. Cuz she has individual character. She's exactly. A, she's not That's, just a trope. I know. I I've also heard people say, "Oh, the the divine comedy gets a little boring or something in uh, purgatory or the paradise um paradiso." And I thought, yeah, people probably turn into like righteous robots, but not so. No. It's the opposite. I love that there's room for passionate pettiness. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't even know what to call it. Well, what, are the, what are those fights called that are just there to prove to each other that you're crazy about each other? Lover, lover's quarrels. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> you don't know because we never have them. <laughs> no, but I think I mean, we re- do, which means our relationship is perfect. That's the point you're making, right? <laughs> I think every relationship has... You want to know that the other person cares and you stir up something. You know what I mean? You stir up some small like fight or argument just to kind of test test the waters. You know what I mean? Well, it's yin and yang. Yang is the masculine, yin is the feminine. So these two things are kind of opposites, kind of fire and water. They need each other. So Mm. there's going to be, you know, tension in this union. I love that in Dante's Eden, there's romantic tension. It's amazing. That's always my objection to heaven, that there's no such thing, you know, that there there doesn't seem to be any place for opposites. What goes back to this big new Herbert? Like, better a creaking floor than shrilly, transparent perfection. I think that's maybe what we're expecting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we get it. Beatrice, transparent perfection. There's a lot of creaking. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of like, really? This is Beatrice? I know. But it's better that way. I know. And the thing is, we Virgil, you know, told Dante, she came to him with tearful eyes. She wanted to save you. We already know how much she loves him. Yeah. 
So this really is just <clears throat> her being, I don't, this sounds reductive, but it's, it seems like she's being a tease a little bit. But so be it. You know, if that's what Dante wants, if that's salvation for Dante, I think that's the point. Like, Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want a perfect angel. I think midway on the journey of our life, if this was about you or me, you know, you would be my Beatrice. But really, this You'd is... You'd be mine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true, though. Like, Beatrice doesn't come down and save everyone. She just comes down and saves the person she wants. And the mm -hmm. person she wants is Dante. Mm -hmm. And the person that Dante wants to be saved by is Beatrice. So the Divine Comedy written by you would look totally different. This is, this is why... Yeah. Virgil's last words to Dante are so great because it's like, whatever your pleasure is, you follow your whim, to use Emerson's word. You go where you want to go. And when you write your Divine Comedy, it's going to look way different than Dante's. Mm. Well, I love Dante so much because he broke all of the pre-expectations of dogma. You know, it's so undogmatic, this poem. It's almost heretical. I keep saying that. But mm. when Christ says, I mean, Christ says a lot of very strange things. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like, that he would come like a thief in the night. I always thought that was really sinister, like a really strange... He says all kinds of weird things. I'm, I come not with peace, but a sword. Mm -hmm. Or he, he, he literally says, resist, not evil. What? Yeah. Or, um, you know, this is my body. It's the bread, you know? The bridegroom. Suddenly sexual. What? The breaking the bread and saying, this is my body. Eat it. Eat my body. It's like, what? Dante is kind of in a way more christian than christian because he's yeah, he's rolling with it he's being as weird as christ christ showed us the way and what is the way be as weird as you need to be mm -hmm. not necessarily do exactly what christ did because that wouldn't be being true to yourself mm -hmm. but this is like what virgil says like follow your own pleasures and be your own person christ doesn't want us to be like him he wants us to be like ourselves and Dante isn't exactly like Christ, but he is analogously weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, breaking conventions, yeah. So I think this is the goal. What what do we have to say about the top of the mountain here? They, there's this other weird vision about the Whore of Babylon and some weird dragon. And I know. I was like, eh, why? <laughs> why, though? It's clearly a poem that we're going to have to keep reading the rest of our lives because... Oh, one thing I want to say about, I know you're not like a fan of these math things, but Beatrice appears in Canto 64 of the whole Commedia. So it's Canto 30 of Purgatory, which is the 64th Canto of the poem. Okay. Six plus four is ten. Okay. For many weird reasons, ten is the perfect number because it's three trinities plus one kind of unity. So she, that lady is the 64th line of the 64th Canto. That lady. Beatrice appears on the 64th line of the 64th canto. In the Italian. And then when she appears, she says, I am she, I am. I am she, I am Beatrice. Very reminiscent of I am that I am. Yeah. So he's making all of these literary allusions and mathematical hints that she is perfection. And you know what? And, and it's not that weird because Christ's body is as important as Beatrice's body to Dante, you know what I mean? His body is what redeems people, right? I and don't know. Don't it's ask me. touching. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know what redeems the apostle, people. Well, according to the Bible, and it's the apostle. The apostles can't witness that he is um, risen again unless they touch him. They yeah, yeah, yeah. Touch his scars. You know, it's yeah. it's the physicality of Christ that 
that yeah. achieves all these things and and is a witness to people, not his words as much as his body. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see if Dante ends up touching Beatrice <laughs> in her spirit form. It's tricky because they go in and out of corporeality. Yeah. When Dante says he looks at Beatrice and says, "I recognize the tokens of the old flame," he's quoting Virgil. This is what oh, yeah. this is what Dido, the character in Virgil who is intemperate in her love, says when she first lays eyes on the hottie known as Aeneas. <laughs> love is a kind of flame, and she her husband has died, and she's like, "Oh, I recognize what this feeling is." Oh, so Dante's saying, "I see what you meant now in your book." Well, I think it's more like um, you were wrong, Virgil, to say that this was a flaw or a vice. Yeah, love burns like a fire, mm. but that's not bad. In fact, it's salvation. I mm-hmm. think Virgil thought it was bad. Yeah. Dante thinks it saves. So he's kind of rescuing the pagan Virgilian mode and making it quote-unquote Christian. But it's not even really it's sect of one. Again, it's not even traditional Christianity. But maybe it is traditional Christianity. When Christ says, this is my body, and I am the way, the truth, and the light, it's like, what does he mean? Does anyone know what he means? <laughs> when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. You know, Dante could look at that and be like, I wonder what bodies I know that could be the way, the truth, and the light, right? You know, I think that's exactly right. What saves is embodied love. Embodied and multi-layered love. Hmm. You like this paint sleep thing. I mean, that sounds like a good way to end, but shouldn't we say things about painting sleep and uh, the stars? The end, yeah. This part. As painter painting from his model, I would try to show you how I fell asleep, but let whoever can paint sleep paint sleep. First of all, I love that's that's a great moment of humility. It's like, there are limits to what I can do. I can describe, <laughs> you know, all these realms <laughs> and, and romantic love in the wildest ways. There's nothing more psychedelic than this poem. I know. It's so wild. But I know my limits. I can't, I can't paint sleep. Reminds me that our son oh. drew what... Yeah, when I saw it, I actually immediately teared up. <laughs> it's hard to describe, but you could give it a try if you think you if you think you can paint sleep with words. Oh, well, so he took a letter-sized paper, and he started on the right side and with zero, and then the, the lines traveled left and, up. and started branching up and to the sides, and the, the branches became more and more intricate, and so the numbers also became bigger and bigger, like from zero to 10,000 to a million. <laughs> so it's like a river with, like, I don't know, dozens of branching tributaries. Exactly, yeah, it. right, it looks like a river. And some branches have other branches that go off. It's... And sometimes the numbers get a little smaller again. Yeah, it goes up, up and down. And, uh-huh. I mean, it's a general kind of upward trend, but it comes in peaks and... He's eight years old. And and yeah, and over this uh, amazing drawing, he wrote My Sleep. And it was amazing. So we asked him to describe it to us. And he said, well, the bigger numbers are deeper sleep. And he said, where are these little branches that come off? He's like, oh, I don't know. You just know in sleep it's like from places or something. Yeah. For personal reasons, I love this. Whoever can paint sleep, paint sleep. And I was like, oh, Isaac. My son can do it. Read the end. So this is the very end of the purgatory. 
Reader, if I had space to write more words, I'd sing, at least in part, of that sweet draft which never could have satisfied my thirst. But now I have completed every page planned for my poem's second canticle. I am checked by the bridle of my art. From those holiest waters I returned, to her reborn, a tree renewed, in bloom, with newborn foliage, immaculate, eager to rise, now ready for the stars. So cool because at the end of the inferno, they finally see the stars. At the end of the purgatory, he's ready for the stars. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's gone through the fire. He's now ready to like enjoy, to truly see them. So amazing. How cool is that? It's every part about that is cool. And this thing about like, I, I have to obey the limits of my art. I so know. It's the bridle of my art. I know. It's like, so, are you serious? <laughs> the state of being in which you follow your own pleasure still has bridles. You still have to, bri- but they're bridles of your own making. You know, they're not other people's bridles. Right. They're, you you invent your own bridles. I know. It's like writers say each poem has its own laws that you have to That's obey. Right. I thought, wow, after all the insane images that we just saw. <laughs> Now he's pulling back. <laughs> now we have to show some restraint after the whore of Babylon and the multi-headed dragon and the griffin of Christ and the parade of elders. And the <laughs> but, you, but you know what? It almost feels like sweet. Like it, it feels like a relief, like a comfort. I am checked by the bridle of my art. Like I'm not just a wild horse yeah, just yeah, running yeah. crazy. This is another chaos. Exactly. Yeah. There is some loving force. That reigns me in. Let's go back to our hippies. It's like you can preach free love all you want, but that's the childish version of a higher law. And that higher I know. law is pleasure involves... is so much greater when there are some rules. Yeah, and restraints and order and Uh-huh. Oh, this is just a stupid comparison, but I notice it every time I try to eat more healthy. You yeah. know what I mean? Dessert yeah, tastes yeah. so much better. Like probably ten times better. When you eat healthy on a gen- on a regular basis, that's exactly right. And you can be, f- you can train yourself to follow those pleasures and know they won't harm you mm-hmm. because more pleasures are open to you, and your tastes have improved, mm-hmm. your habits have improved. So you won't be eating, you know, pizza every day coated in ranch. Mm-hmm. That's that's that, <laughs> you know what I mean. Very Utah. That's the childlike version of follow your pleasure. Okay, follow my pleasure. But if you are, or, you know, to switch analogies, if you're shown what to read, this book is better than that book. And you graduate from college with, with a sense of what's better. You've put in the hard work. You've gone on the quote-unquote diet. You've trained your body. You now crave things and can drive pleasure from things that are better. Oh, yeah. And you can be trusted to go through the library savoring things in healthy proportion. You won't hurt yourself. Right. You won't be just reading a junk food diet. I know, like anarchy is completely unexciting to me because this is too much freedom. Too much freedom turns into um, imprisonment. So um, we'll see you next time for the Star Trek Dante space adventure. He goes from planet to planet. He's ready. And he's ready for the stars. I love the idea of being ready for them. Because it's like, well, duh, isn't everybody? But then maybe not. No, 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 we're not. Yeah. I'm talking way too long here, but it's it's like every every line of this poem rings eight bells in my mind. It's like every time I, I teach Hamlet, for example, a lot. Every time I do, I think this is going to sound really condescending and elitist, and 
maybe even mean, but I think, are my students ready? Mm-hmm. Are they ready for the stars? I think they are ready if I show them that it's much easier to enjoy and experience this play than they think. They don't need to decode it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I, you know, it does take some, it does take some burning away of some preconceptions. Like this isn't what you think. Don't pay attention to that. This doesn't matter. What matters is this. I'm not that. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Gosh, I feel like we barely got into it. Well, you know, we'll be, like I say, I've read it many times and I've barely got into it. So it's, that's what makes it so great, isn't it, though? You you know it will always be there, and it will always be offering you new things. Mm-hmm. That's why one reason why it feels so miraculous, because it will always be giving you something. Since we've already talked long enough, there's no poem of the day this time. Next up will be Dante's Paradise, which I'm looking forward to. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening.